like that we're live that's it i would i would say this one is highly anticipated i i think i speak (laughs) for everyone and say this one is highly anticipated you think so and to to clarify this person has been on the list since the list was invented since this was just a twinkle in our eye of having this whole podcast thing so that's flattering you're a man of mystery mr yato you're a man of mystery (laughs) (laughs) and we're here to kind of crack down that mystery and try and figure out your background. Great. Yeah, we we know a little bit from a certain point, but how how did how did you first learn of audio? Um, just wanted to say, first of all, thanks for having me. And I've listened to every single one of the podcasts, and <laughs> it's so addicting. Oh. And I was like, oh, if Gary has me on, that'd be great because, uh, hey, we're neighbors. But yeah. Yeah, it's, it's been a while. I haven't seen Matt in a long time, so yeah, it's thanks been for having time. me on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, how did I get started? I listening yeah, to how the did, podcast. How, how did you even be <laughs> right? <laughs> how did you even become aware that car audio was a thing? Like, how far back? It does goes it go? pretty far back, and like part of my um, experience. Uh, helping fill out the audio car audio tapestry that you guys are trying to uh, fill in I try to do my part and uh, going back to so the first time I even can remember being interested in cars was the scene in back to the future when okay. Marty McFly opens the door at the very end and that black shiny four by four pickup yeah. truck shows up that made me go oh my god what is that? And that made me interested in cars. So I started reading magazines. Being a techie guy, I guess I was always reading the those specifications in the back of the end of the reviews of you know engine displacement, wheelbase, all that. And I used to look at that, and I was into cars. And so I was a skater guy like Gary. But then one of my skater buddies, who was a, a little bit older, but had pretty well-off parents goes, I'm going to get a GTI. And I was like, cool. And he showed me the brochure, right? So this is like an 85 GTI. It's a little bit after 85. And I'm like, I want one of those too. But we come (laughs) from very different backgrounds. So I didn't know what my future would be, but that got me into that. And, you know, car audio was always around. So the first time that I could distinctly remember hanging out in the high school parking lot and this guy lee bowers uh, ironically drove an 88 accord hatchback i don't know i don't remember i think he had 215s but just what the heck is that so very similar experience to a lot of people right so just the booming bass and since my friend was into it uh we'd hang out some stereo shops when he was picking out the equipment that he was gonna get Zapco amps. Remember the Zapco amps with the power supply was separate and all that stuff. I didn't know what any of that stuff was, but I remember that was my first exposure to it. A place called ProTech Auto Sound in 
San Diego. And so then the other funny thing that kind of drove me to the car audio scene, I, I hear people that worked with their dads and their dad kind of was their, you know, mentor or whatever. My dad told me no stereo in the house. And I was like, well, I'll put it in my car then. And so there's the, uh, the Asian agreement when you're a kid. I, I don't want to over stereotype, but you get good grades, you get kind of taken care of, or, you know, you get, there's a monetary incentive to getting good grades. And so I was like, all right, so I got good grades. I got to do whatever I want as a younger person, as a skate punk, as long as I got good grades. And so before I even turned 16, I mean, it's a different generation now, but you know, you're counting down the minutes till you get your driver's license. But, um, my dad, my parents bought me at my, the GTI that I wanted used, of course, when I was still 15 and a half. So it sat there in the driveway for about six months before I could drive, looking at it, messing with it. I didn't really mess with a stereo, but I had a cousin and he, I took a ride in his car. And that's the first time I remember, remember seeing an Alpine radio in the dash, you know, the green chiclets, all the classic stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, I want an Alpine too. So I drove my dad crazy. So before I was even 16, we went to a place called Mad Jack's in San Diego. And I bought a radio, which was pretty expensive for the time. Cassette deck, some six by nines, and they installed it, cut some holes in the back, the little flappy <laughs> the thing, the package rear package trade. tray, yeah. right? And you, know, you listen <laughs> I may to, or may I, not have done that a couple times. I knew nothing about audio, but especially not car audio, but I had at least something in the car. And this is, again, before I even got my license. The funny thing is, is knowing that I liked cars, there was no how it's made or anything. I have immigrant parents that didn't really go to college, don't have any guidance, and there's no way to know what to do. But I distinctly remember that the Alpine stuff and going, I want to, I want to be a engineer and work at Alpine. So little by little, my interest in car audio picked up, you know, you read the magazines, do all that stuff. And I got it in my head somehow that I needed to go to school and design amplifiers and be an engineer at Alpine. So I wrote my college essay in the night, I'd say 1990 and said, I'm going to go to UCSD and be an amplifier engineer. So I need to pick electrical engineering and Unfortunately, there was no one to talk me out of it at the time and say, that's really not what you want to do. So again, had the grades and got in. So that's pre-college. And so I was young for my grades. So I graduated high school at 17 and started college at 17 also. And so at that time, you know, I'm still thinking my way into Alpine is through the through a degree or something like that. And I'm interested in car audio, but no real interest in putting it in or doing anything like that. So I'm accepted to UCSD. I think that's the path. And I worked a job to buy some uh, equipment and had it put it in in uh, late summer of 90. So I'm still in high school. And... I got it put in. I was pretty excited. It was some used 
Rockford speakers with an Orion uh, 225 HCCA cheater amp and a high phonics Pluto. So don't ask me how I got the products, <laughs> buddies, bartering, whatever it was. And I had it put in because I had no idea how to put anything in. So six by nines are gone. Rockford uh, product in the front and the amps. Then I drive and I distinctly remember driving into the high school parking lot and hitting a speed bump and the left channel, <clears throat> the whole left channel cut out. And I was like, what the hell's going on? And then I had to like drive pretty aggressively and hit another bump and then they would come and turn back on. And I was like, man. So I took it back to the shop. They weren't particularly helpful or, you know, they, I didn't spend a lot of money, just had some stuff put in and here I am complaining. I don't know if you remember, um, Ryan Amps had phantom power. It would drive either the crossover or something, plugging it in with a DIN cable yeah. or whatever. You know, oh, you fried this or did that. And it was pretty <clears throat> not the greatest experience. So haggling back and forth, I was like, all right, I guess me, I got to figure this out. So me and my friend ripped apart my whole system and... Sure enough, it was bad ground or something like that. Repaired it, and I was like, all right. That was my first foray was breaking down my broken system and trying to figure out what's happening because I didn't have any more money because I already spent it all on that install. Let's see. From there, yeah, I was still not particularly thinking that I was going to be an installer by any stretch of the imagination. I still distinctly remember there was another kid in high school that was a grade older than me that did installs. And so he would, he was going to be the guy. It's like, oh, if I save up enough money, I'm going to have James install my system. But the more I got into it, my buddy, my best friend in high school, Dave Bush, he had a old MGBGT, if you know what that looks like. It's a small hatchback, British, unreliable car that he decided he wanted to do stereo stuff in. And I was going to be his buddy to help him put it in. And his dad had a lot of tools in his garage, and so we would go over to his his house and start tinkering in his uh, install and some of the memories from that. So this is where it starts getting, I start getting hooked into a little bit more helping with the fab. So there, was, there were Iaska shows in San Diego at the Del Mar Fairground, so we'd walk around, check out some installs that were pretty neat. But, you know, still doing it myself, I, we w really didn't feel like we had any knowledge or skill of how to do that. So I remember gluing together inch and a half of particle board and shaping with a surfform file to make a door panel, putting <laughs> carpet on the door panel with some glue, but then trying to do something with a heat gun and singeing the carpet. I mean, if you would have seen what I was doing at that time, you're like, this guy is so bad. He'll never make it. Like, it would have just been a comedy of errors. And you would have been like, yep, this guy just became an engineer and went to work in the front of a computer every day. So I think about all those things. But somewhere there, like my buddy and I is like, yeah, if you really want to make it to Alpine, you're going to have to work your way up. You're going to have to work at a, you know, the, a chain store and work your way up. And I'm like, no, nah, that's not me. I'm not going to do that. And so as I got more and more interested into it and, you know, buying stuff for it, I found this uh, 
shop called Elite Systems in San Diego. And I would go there, just talk the guy's ear off and buy a little bit of wire and some RCANs <laughs> or some, uh, some uh, what is it, ring terminals for grounds or something like that. Things People don't understand how difficult it was to find things for installing. I remember driving around San Diego, looking in the yellow pages again, yellow pages, the the <laughs> book that people laugh about now <laughs> to find black screws that would be, you know, you see, you don't want the zinc plated shiny screws when you install an amp, you need black screws, but where do you get black screws? And I drive from hardware store to hardware store trying to find stuff like that <laughs> and getting interested in those kind of things. But I remember that we paid an installer to solder our RCANs because I didn't have a soldering iron and we didn't know how to um, do any of that stuff. So building the car with him was definitely an experience and going to that stereo shop. So they had a Bob Morrow for anyone that knew him was the custom guy at that uh, shop and he was a nice guy and he would let me listen to his car showed me the install ADS it was a pretty much an ADS and Alpine system in a Chevy Cavalier that was cherry red and I remember walking in there and seeing how nice the system was and like oh that's really awesome so I hung out at that shop all the time to uh bug him and ask him questions. And I was like, instead of working at a retail shop, I want to hang out here and work for you guys. And they're like, well, you don't have any experience. And I said, yeah, I understand, but I'll sweep the, you know, same thing, sweep the floor, do whatever. And they're like, well, we can't really afford to pay you. And I said, doesn't matter. I, I'll make money a different way. <laughs> and um, I'll, I just want to hang out. And so they, they said, sure, come on by. And so the summer after I started college, I spent every single day of the summer there working for free. And so they said, well, we can't, you know, not pay you anything. So we'll buy you lunch. So I, I worked an eight to 10 hour day every day for an entire summer for lunch. Wow. And oh, they, had so that's when I learned about Iaska. They had a shop truck, which was a '91 Pathfinder, a red Pathfinder, that they were building for Iaska. And so, what's this Iaska? You know, you've seen the shows, but you didn't really put two plus. I didn't put two plus two together. But they're like, we're building it. This is the rule book, and you have to make it look as nice underneath as you know on the surface. And I was like, oh, so I took home the install book and read that front to back you know i understood you know the concept of it but what really piqued my interest was the judging criteria for the install side of things and so these guys were really really way above me and advanced in the fabrication side we had a woodworker and um bob and then the owner mark and a buddy of mine that was uh, his name, Sam Jones. And so it felt like family working there, even though I was <laughs> working for free. Everyone was really nice to me. And one of the first jobs that they gave me was they had a Frank Ampenstein Phoenix Gold. If you know what that is, <laughs> it was a pretty iconic amplifier that was, uh, I believe, an MS-2150 and an MS-2150. 
250 combined together in one heat sink. And it was pretty cool. But it, they had it mounted and it motorized from a flat position to the 90 degree position. They're like, well, we want this piece of MDF um, replicated in acrylic. So I said, okay, I guess I'll take it. So I took that piece of MDF and I replicated it. It had some holes and a big chamfer or round over on it for clearance. And you had to polish the insides of the hole, polish the whole edge. Everything had to be pretty nice. And so I took it as a 17, 18-year-old, and I took it and went to town and finished it. And I gave it back to them, and they're like, oh, this is pretty good. You have some potential. And that's kind of the first time I remember doing something that was above uh, average. And um, I did work on some friends' cars right when, right when I um, started college. So first uh, winter break. I worked like literally the whole entire break, day and night, working on a friend's car. He had an Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme with some Sony uh. gear. And I built out the whole trunk with a sub-enclosure and did all that in his car. So I guess the bug really bit pretty hard. So not only the I ask a rule book install, but, you know, just, just starting to build stuff. So... I did say that my dad said no audio in the house, but once he saw that I was starting to get into it, I made a pact with him because I uh, wanted to use the garage, obviously. And he says, all right, I'll lend you the money or give you the money, but you have to rebuild the garage and, you know, make it like a workstation. So I used to read Popular Science and Popular Mechanics quite a bit, and they had some plans on how to make garage workbenches out of two by fours and masonite and all these things. So I rebuilt the garage with money that my dad let me uh, have slash borrow. I can't even remember if I ever paid him back. But uh, <laughs> one of the other pivotal moments working with my friend Dave on those cars was, if you guys remember, NAME, National Academy of Mobile Electronics Videos. So there was a guy that his name was Mike Brailt that um, produced these series of videos. And it was kind of funny because the way we got them is some guy was walking around door to door and my buddy bought them off of a guy. And so we watched the videos and that's the first time I ever saw a Bosch jigsaw and a flush trim router bit and a step drill. And I was like, where have these things been all of my life? So that was part of the pack. My, I, you know, again, no Google, no internet, driving from Times store to so store. Different. It's so different what, how you gathered information back then. And like these things still stand out to me because the key moments, like I'll mention in the upcoming stories, is that information was so hard to get and when i found those nuggets they were so important to me mm -hmm. and they're important to me still i mean that was 20 we're coming on 30 years but those nuggets of information were so important to me that i really hold on to them like i still remember the first place i ever bought a step drill and the first place i bought that flush trim router bit what are these things and you know they're the staples of things that you do in the future going from there let's say oh i'm working at the stereo shop and we built the shop car. So once I proved my worth after that summer, they started, they said, okay, we could pay you. And I was working for 
couple hundred bucks for every two weeks. So I never did it for the money. I did it for the love of the install. The knowledge that I gained there was pretty instrumental. The shop truck went to Iaska Regionals. I remember driving up to Sacramento with the car and being, you know, just starting to see how big the scenes were. We used to have local shows at um, in our own parking lot, which was interesting. So that started getting me exposed to people in the industry, locally at least, from the shows. And then the regionals were a big show. But I was still so young. I'm not hobnobbing it with anybody. I'm just going and just soaking it up. The thing that I remember, oh, so we go to the show and they change the rules that night that batteries on the interior of the car had to be ventilated. We missed the meeting because of traffic and we got disqualified. So we drive all the way up there and get disqualified, (laughs) which was really disheartening. But I still remember watching, you know, still there. So we're going to find out and chad claudner's mustang was probably making one of its debuts and just being in awe of something of that caliber at that time right so seeing just the level of installs at a regional event versus a local event i was like wow there's so much cool stuff out here so that was a another very inspirational moment going to that and so just kept plugging away at the stereo shop it was a pretty high-end shop so there were very few things that came in that didn't stay there a week what there was nothing that was turn and burn nothing that i had to do and turn even the alarm system we did in two days and it was never that type of environment so i've never if i had to do retail install i would have starved to death and been burnt out so all the you know there's so many other guys that i listen to their stories and you know they worked in such a different environment than i did Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i'm kind of one of those guys if it's do it right or don't do it at all and so that's just been my personality like I have a lot of stuff at home that's totally not done because I don't have the time or the resources to do it right say sorry to my wife Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. uh, that's just how my personality is so it's pretty interesting that it's been you know for such a long time that that's the um, route that I took so I'm trying to think back going to college so I did get into electrical engineering and boy I went from being you know the top 10% in my high school to the bottom 10% in college and I was like (laughs) I I'm just surrounded by people that absorb information so well and so fast and so easily and I'm just like this is it was really difficult to be around but I still did my best um Things start off with math, and then once it starts getting to physics, when it's regular physics, that's awesome. So I got A's and A pluses, all the, you know, I thought I was on my road to maybe making the making it in this world, right? And then you take quantum physics, yeah, yeah, and you walk in, <laughs> and the first day, some guy writes this huge equation on the board and tells you what you learned in physics wasn't real physics. This is real physics, and I was like, "Oh no, this is not for me." <laughs> yeah. And so I remember that I studied pretty hard to try to do well, but I went in, took the final, and it was a ten-page final, and I looked at everything. I read through all ten pages. I couldn't even start to answer a question. So I just put the test down, got up, walked away, went straight to the dean's office and filled out a leave of absence, leave 
form, whatever it was. And I walked away <laughs> and I went home and I told my parents that I had dropped out of college and I thought my dad was going to oh, rail shit. me. But yeah. he's like, I was like, uh, dropped out of college today. And they're like, what? My mom was the one. What are you going to do? And they got really. And I said, I'm going to just keep working at that stereo shop. And they're like, what? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'm just going to, you know, keep working there. So there was one day where, you know, I was so into what I was doing at the stereo shop at Elite. One day I was drawing some, you know, cross passive crossover networks. And I don't know, Gary, you both know. I don't know, Matt, do, you, do people even wire their own passive crossover networks anymore? But no regardless of what wiring diagram on paper and what you're doing and what it looks like when you're connecting the wires together is a very different thing and so i'm taking all these electric courses and i'm doodling and i realized the car i was working on i had put the coil in front of the cap and it was pretty much a direct short to the amp so i stood up in class (laughs) went straight to work and luckily the car wasn't gone yet and i go i gotta fix the crossover and so i knew i was pretty dedicated to being in that career over what I was doing at school. So um, that plus all the other things that were fun about just the atmosphere of working in the shop and working around those kind of people was where I felt like I really needed to be. So like I said, dropped out of school and uh, started working there full time for a whopping 500 bucks every two weeks. So <laughs> this is 90. That's, and that's how you could have. 93. 93. And, and that's 90. how they could afford to take two days on an alarm. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> like this play. Like, so I have no idea at the age of how far from reality this type of um, shop and shop environment was, but the quality of the work we were in magazines for not just shop truck, but other, uh, customer installs that we did auto sound and security took a cover page of or cover shot of the magazine was a Integra that we did in our shop because our shop was pretty clean and that you know this is in 93 my little craftsman toolbox is like on the floor on the cover of a magazine and I was like oh that's so cool and so you know just loved it loved the environment and so there's you know like we had those store store i ask a shows and so there were people that would come down so alpine would show up all the local local companies would show with their cars or demo cars and things like that and so there was a guy charles white who worked for alpine i don't know gary if you know who he is but people will know the perfect circle that brian sells through mobile solutions was invented by charles white and then he sold it off to brian but uh, Charles White back then was the local, we called them the FMRs, out the field merchandise representatives. And they would come with a demo car. And, you know, you see that and you're like, oh, that's a pretty cool job driving around from show to show in a, in a company uh, demo car. I thought that was the way that I wanted to go or whatever. But so my friend Sam Jones w- that worked it with me at Elite um, he was my buddy. He was like my real mentor and he got a job at Alpine through Charles White. And I was like, man, Sam's going to leave me. And I was, I wasn't like jealous, you know, he's <laughs> Sam's older than me. He had way more experience. And I said, oh, that's great. You know, so 
we're standing by the door on the last day when he packed up his toolbox and we're closing the shop for the day. And he goes, hey, man, it was great working with you. Don't worry, I'm going to get you in. And I said, Sam, (laughs) you haven't even started your first day yet. And he goes, don't worry about it. Going to get you in. And I was just like, all right, man, I really appreciate it. Keep in touch. You know, this is, again, no internet, Mm -hmm. cell phones. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm not going to see one of my, you know, buddies that I've worked with for, you know, a couple of years because he's got this job at Alpine. So, you know. So the next nine months, I'm still working there. So I kind of became one of the more lead installers. Bob's still there. He's working on things. But I I was doing a lot more fabrication. And then, sure as promised, nine months later, I'm in at Alpine. So the funny thing is, so (laughs) I started in at Alpine in February of 95. But in December of 94, I... I was Sam got me an interview for that FMR position, which would be like a replacement of what Charles was doing, driving mm-hmm. around demo cars. So it's a sales position. Mm-hmm. So I get a, you know, we make a resume, I get an interview, and I drive up to Alpine. I'm so nervous. At that point, I just turned 21. So I'm 21 in two weeks or something like that. And I walk into this interview, and the vice president of uh, sales is a pretty intimidate wasn't a pretty intimidating guy named Mark Carnes. I don't think I spoke because I was so nervous. Like I had to sit on my hands because I was so nervous. And he, you know, am I qualified? Maybe technically, but I was so mute and like, yes, uh-huh, yep, uh-huh. Uh-uh. Probably quiver in my voice. And he's like, yeah, this guy's not gonna make it. So you need someone that's more outgoing. So mm-hmm. I was, they turned me down and that was pretty heartbreaking at the time, right? So that was a sales, technically that's in the sales group position. So I sat around, I had quit the job at Elite because that place doing two day installs, I guess, wasn't doing so good. And, you know, I forget some of the drama that we had, but, you know, things, the sh- I left the shop, but then I didn't do anything but watch the OJ trial for about two months until <laughs> <laughs> this is the time to give it a time frame until I got another um, invite for a different position in marketing. So tech support at Alpine was in marketing and the job was also to support show cars and whatnot. So I got an interview. So I worked myself up for that, knowing how nervous I was the first time around. And so I interviewed with a different person who was uh, the marketing manager, Henry Ruggieri at the time. And I was like way looser, almost to the point where I heard that I was almost too loose. And I almost didn't get the job the second time around because I was too easygoing. And so anyways, that's when I got hired, let's say. So that'd be pretty much late January. And I started at Alpine in February of 95. So I walk in the door so Sam, the guy who got me the mm-hmm. job pretty much, and I, he used to cover San Diego. So he said, all right, we're going to leave super early on your first day, and we're going to drive up there. And I said, okay. So crack a dawn, we get in the car and get in his truck and start driving. Man, traffic's so bad. Some lady and her kids jump, were standing on the bridge and trying to jump off the freeway. So the freeway was shut down oh, on my way there. It took us... 
three and a half hours. We were supposed to be there eight, and I think I showed up at nine thirty. And I walk in, and I'm like, oh, "Gonna get fired! Gonna get fired! Gonna get fired!" So I'm dressed up in a button-up shirt and probably slacks or something. And the, why are you guys late? Uh, there was a lady trying to jump off the freeway, off the bridge in the freeway. And he looks at me and goes, why are you dressed like that? And I go, because <laughs> it's my first day. And he goes, hope you've got a change of clothes. You're going straight to the back. Okay. So I went to the bathroom, changed in some jeans wow. and a t-shirt, went straight <laughs> to the install bay. Because I knew Sam, I had been there probably that first time I got interviewed and turned down. So I got to see what the install bay was. Gary knows what the iteration of it was after, you know, I had left. But for people who haven't heard, it's pretty much a three-car garage with a little bit more room for a wood shop. It is not a glamorous, large location. But when I walked in... It's not Rockford. (laughs) It is not. It is not anything (laughs) glamorous. It's just a back area of a pretty large building. And when I got there, it was... Sorry for the people that worked there before me. It was pretty much in disarray. So I worked there, you know, so I pull up. And so my first day, you know, we, when I first got there, we were doing a fleet of Ram trucks. Um, There were five. The way that Alpine's mentality was, we built a show car and they went to the different regions of the country. So they built five somewhat duplicate um, trucks and so this was already pre-designed pre-planned it was had a cut through and had eight twelves and some enclosure in the back that were made with a fiberglass face all that stuff and i remember it had kimber cable in it mm-hmm. matt do you know what kimber cable yeah, is i absolutely do yeah okay yeah <laughs> do you know what the four gauge or one not equivalent of kimber cable is for the people that are listening instead of just a single solid wire it's a braided system so i had the first thing i remember was helping wire the car but each one not sized or at least four gauge sized piece of kimber cable is probably a hundred individual wires that had to be individually stripped to make one termination i'm like who does this This is like a torture you know (laughs) trying to strip every end you had to strip like at least 70 pieces and then crimp it and do that but anyways the trucks were pretty mediocre but that was my first um, experience. So because there were four of five of them, we had to do five duplicate installs. They already had one. So maybe we did four more, but we did that. And, um, after those were, when you say we at that, at that point, who was, who was back there at that point? So at that point, there was a guy named Matt Ayala and my friend, Sam Jones, uh, Alan Tremble. And then, that's when the first time I met Steve Brown is he came down. So those, the guys I just mentioned were relatively local or in-house. And then Steve covered the Pacific Northwest being from Washington area. And so he flew down and would help out too. But, you know, it was definitely bro-ish in there. And we did a lot of fun, crazy things getting this, getting these uh, cars together. There was one more guy his name was Troy. He's the one that got the job instead of me that first go around. 
And so <laughs> we were the guys building the cars, right? So anyways, you build these cars. It was, you know, work and it was, you know, an experience. But the crazy thing was, is that six months, less than six months in. So this is June, July of that year. All of a sudden you look around, the Matt Ayala was gone and a couple other people were gone. I was in charge of show cars. And so the way that it worked out and the blessing in disguise was I didn't mm-hmm. get that first position and this marketing position, marketing handles a budget for the show cars. The work of it was assisted by the sales group and the FMRs, people that were called FMRs at the time. So the responsibility of the show car fell into marketing and I was the guy. And so the first year that I was there, like, it's just literally like crickets and you look around and I'm like, am I really the guy? I'm 21 years and six or seven months old. And I'm this is 90, 95, mid 1995. You got to grow up real quick. Grow up pretty dang quick. And, you know, I, I wasn't caught. I'm not particularly, you know a confident person or whatever. And so I was just like, wow, this is pretty incredible, but am I up to the challenge? And so the first car, like in the beginning, I had no choice in car or anything. It's the car got delivered to us and it was a 96 or 95 GMC Jimmy. Can't even remember. I think Mm -hmm. it was a four door, but here's, here's your canvas. All right. So I built, and do you guys remember DD drive, Matt? It's a, It's a. It's I ain't a that young. Speaker. Yeah, the speaker lineup that, that they chose this is, at the time. This is nineties though, man. Yeah, but yeah. I feel like it's. But still... I started getting into cars like pre two thousand, so like ninety six, ninety seven. Like I would grab magazines, so I was kind of looking at the same stuff that everyone else was looking at, right? I was I was young for sure. I was it was yes. pre high school, but I was still interested in that. So I would still see the same type of magazines that everyone else was looking at, trying to backwards engineer stuff at an early age. Because at this age, I had a four-wheeler, right? And that was like my canvas. And that's what got me into my progression of cars. So I was just like buying everything I could for my four-wheeler just to install it, Nerf bars, whatever it was, and putting that in. But I was still very interested in cars. So all the stuff that you guys were talking about, I was still very much in in depth in the industry at this moment in time. Awesome. So that, at that time, so V12 amps, do you remember V12 amps? So those had just come out mm-hmm. and Alpine had just released some digital time alignment processors that had to go in this car. So that's what I um, worked on with this car is you know i built i built out the back the way that i knew how but then i incorporated mortarization an aluminum plate that mounted woofers on the front and the back and when because of the v12 it motorized into a v and then when you i wish you had pictures but this is again pre Mm -hmm. this is when you used Mm -hmm. to take it to the photo photo mat to develop your pictures but i I designed a system in the back that when you, you know, hit the remote, the amplifiers would motorize into a V and then you could see down into the, um, 
enclosure, had an acrylic window, had the woofers down firing, slot ported to the back, and um, had like separate chambers, had the processors on the side, had kick panels in the front. And I still remember the first time we're kind of scrambling towards the end of the install and they're like, hey, we need to put these speakers in the back facing rearward for, you know, for a show. But how do we do that? Like I was a very, really basic guy, squarish things with rounded edges. And then Steve's like, Steve Brown comes in and goes, oh, I'll make those for you. And so he whipped out these rear facing pods out of fiberglass and whatnot in a much faster fashion than any of us could. And we're like, who's this fiberglass wizard kid that's here, you know? <laughs> and so we were, you know, we were all friends, but we were pretty impressed at how he did that. And so that's the first time I remember really hitting it off with Steve and like, all right, yeah, we got to work together more, man. And so we went to CES and debuted the car and people were, you know, really I'm standing in the background, but they're like, Hey, who did this car? This is better than, you know, before, like that was the first year that I felt that the status of Alpine and the demo cars were finally starting to come together. So, and we were getting recognition for that. And so that was, let's say step one, but you know, after CES that year, we go back to our regular jobs and that next year, it was a lot of tech support. So that's my other part of the job was, tech support and drawing gary you know what a ptg is product technical guide that we mm-hmm. oh god yeah so basically yeah luckily i never had to do that part so a product technical guide was the drawing and the wiring diagram for every product that alpine sold at the time with connections and it was done with adobe illustrator i had sucked. never i never <laughs> had used a computer other than for typing before. And so my manager, uh, Todd Van Zant, he, he got me a Mac God. and he, yep, Gary knows Todd and got me a tutor. This kid, this guy sat with me for two days and just helped me draw stuff and learn how to use. This is when MacBook laptops were brown. And when you opened them up, the Apple logo was upside down. And I just remember, boy, this is not awesome, but that's the first time I used a computer and started learning how to draw and help draw. You had to draw every line on the RCA ends and every, you know, thing and the computers are so slow. It was a real struggle to uh, draw, but that was one of my other jobs, answering tech support. And then next year, the next year we built a... Dodge Dakota, which is the truck, right? So Dodge Mm -hmm. Dakota extra cab. And again, we had, you know, our series of product that was coming out for that year at CES. We got the prototype ones and we built a system in the back again, which had pictures, but it was a relatively simple system. But the way that I used to think of systems is how to just make the shapes and the theme flow from one portion to the other. And so I think we did some stair-stepped amplifiers over some sub-enclosures and then something about the enclosure tied into the center console or something pretty basic like that. We didn't have a lot of time that year, but we made that made that Dakota and showed it at CES. Um, at that time, 
we Steve would come down for maybe two weeks, three weeks towards the end before CES and help out with the car. And we worked really well together. And so that was awesome. And we, you know, I was pretty unassuming at the time, showed it at CES. And then let's say, you know, again, things weren't very instantaneous back then. So maybe a month or so later, we see the truck that we built in AutoSend Security Magazine and it won their best of show. Like they, I don't recall them telling us there were no trophies back then. It was just, hey, these are the things we saw at CES, take some pictures. And our truck got best of show. And I was like, all right, that seems pretty random, but that's cool. <laughs> we're getting a little, we're getting a little bit more notice. Yeah. And so again, we built another series of those trucks for, so we built four or five more trucks, um, pretty much carbon copies, but I didn't know we were copying when we made it. So there were no templates or anything like that. So <laughs> here you are building it from scratch and, you know, it's kind of gets repetitive. The way that they would do it was if there was a field rep from that area, they would come and help. So you had help of varying degrees. Um, and that's how I just kept building stuff that year and ship those cars, ship those trucks out at the time trying to recall all my memories. Steve was working for Alpine and he had his 88 legend that he tricked out. So he's up there tinkering on his car. And when we would deliver these cars, it would coincide with, let's say, an Iaska finals or something like that. So we would drive out to finals and then exchange one of the vehicles with another rep or drive it out to the East coast or something like that. And, um, 97, so we drove one out and we're at Iaska finals and we set up a show and we're walking around checking things out. And one of my buddies comes over and goes, so this is 97. So maybe I'm skipping a year or slightly skipping forward, but we were with that truck and he come, one of my buddies goes, Hey, you just missed Mark. He just he came over here. And I was like, Mark who? And I go, Mark Fukuda. And he goes, I think so. And like Mark Fukuda is like, <laughs> his back is turning and walking away. And so I ran up to Mark because I guess I didn't mention before, but one of my heroes, right? In the magazines growing up. And I was like, hey, Mark, I'm Chris. Nice to meet you. I heard, you know, you were looking for who built the truck. And he's like, yeah, you know, so we walked back over to the truck and he's like, yeah, I like how y'all did this. How'd you do this? How'd you do that? And I was explaining it to him. I was like, how would you have done it? And he's telling me how he would have done it. I was just like, wow, I'm sitting here with a legend talking shop, right? right? In in our truck. This is so unreal. But then um, he, that's the year that he had built a cigarette boat. And he had Mm -hmm. something, for whatever reason, he had the build book in his area. And I sat there. It must have been for hours because <laughs> he, the guy that was standing there, I think it was his one of his partners, Rabbit, goes, hey, you need to leave. And I was like, all right. And I <laughs> kept leaving, you know, and then I came back and looked at it again. He was like, he was really nice. But we went out to, Mark actually took me and Rabbit and we went to dinner that during that show or whatever. And I was just in absolute awe. And Mark was one of the guys, you know, how'd you learn how to weld? And he's like, just buy a welder 
And that's the first time I ever heard the words McMaster car. And of course, the way Mark says it, it's McMaster car. And I was like, what is that again? And he goes, McMaster car. And I said, what is that? And he goes, it's like Granger, but on steroids. And it's pretty funny, like how things have come between me and McMaster car. But those are the first times I ever heard those words. And so those are the things that stick out with me. And, um, yeah, that was the highlight of that show for me, definitely. But so <laughs> being part of marketing and everything, we would go always go to Iaska Finals. We had to go to you know CES and all these shows and support. So that was, you know, that was the day to day and the show support. And then we built a Durango, which is the same as the Dakota, but the SUV version. And so mm-hmm. that was another truck where we had carried a theme from the front to the back and that year you know every year we kept petitioning hey steve needs to come down here more and work with us you know and so maybe he got maybe a month or two to work with us on the durango and then the year after that we um built a ford f-250 so the durango i don't recall if it ever won any it gets magazine coverage but it didn't win anything it was nice for its time i guess people seem to like it but back in those days if something was popular or not you had no feedback mechanism i think my whole entire career at alpine there is no feedback mechanism like i hear about you matt and you can see the analytics of your youtube post and this podcast and there's none of that i have no idea other than yeah we did a nice job at the show it didn't break as a weird time it was and so then we built a ford f-250 super duty truck and that was one of those projects that didn't go so well. No, you know, there's Murphy's Law. I am a mm-hmm. recipient or a subject of <laughs> Murphy's Law more often than anyone I know. So that was, uh, Gary knows that, you know, the CES builds are built on prototype things for the upcoming year, right? Mm-hmm. So some mm-hmm. years products work better than others, but that year we had that car and a Volvo that had some prototype hybrid amp that didn't work. And so it was pretty grueling to make the truck. The truck didn't sound the way I wanted it to because we built an isobaric woofer or box with a cut through with, I think, 16 woofers. Alpine woofers weren't so great back then. And so we thought more the better, right? But we'd mistuned it. It didn't sound so good. And so between not being too happy with that, we motorized the amplifier rack in the middle to rotate just as a kind of a gimmick. Steve had put a couple monitors in the dash and it was had door panels with lighting and things like that. But the other vehicle with the <laughs> hybrid amps kept breaking. So we had to replace the. So you'd stand there, talk all day, do the show at CES. And then I had to stay three or four more hours to break down the Volvo, replace the amp, put a new one in. <laughs> then the next day I had to sit in the car and then it would, it just kept happening every night. I had to replace the amps and it was uh-huh. not very easily serviceable and it was a disaster. So then we had a Alpine always had a separate recovery room next door. And so I'm laying down, kind of laying down on the table and they're like, Hey, Chris, come over. And I'm like, I'm sleeping. Like, no, no, you need to come over now. And I walk back over and 
I guess that's the first time that they had given Auto Sound. No, sorry. What is the magazine? Car Sound had given out a best of show. And so that was the first year I recall them, you know, giving us. And I was like, we won with that thing. And I still (laughs) remember standing there, you know, I I hit it, you know, I'm like, hey, that's great. Great. Anything, you know, all good press for Alpine. But I was kind of like, wow, that, that, that truck didn't really deserve to win, to be honest. But it had the gimmicks and the show, you know, show aspect of it, the motorization, the bent plexiglass windows, things that, you know, were somewhat unique for the time, I guess. To take a few steps back real quick, you mm-hmm. were talking about the motorization amp rack for the, I think you said the V12 amp, right? Yes. So at that point in time, that sounds like the first revolution of when you're using motorization like where does that come into play with you because that seems like a pretty dramatic step to just start motorizing stuff that kind of early on in your career i'm a tinkerer i really like geometry and you know having all the experience so that first show car with a frank ampenstein had one linear actuator that just you know had a pivot point and it rotated the amplifier up and down and i was like mm-hmm. oh that's pretty neat how'd you do that bob and he kind of showed me some of the ways that he did it so that sat in the back of my mind but on so a that was the inspiration install, for it that was you know and it was showcased like you could see the actuator right, inside right. a window so i knew that those things existed but I didn't know really until I started working there how to do the reverse polarity relays mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, I think Gary's talked about the Bosch relay book, things like that, you know, things that you study, <laughs> like, again, all the information that was so hard to come by was so cherished. And so uh, the funny thing with that first gmc jimmy with a motorization so i it was a pretty uh complex box it had four linear actuators to pull down on some linkages that Mm -hmm. made that v motorization work so the problem is with the actuators the the v shape rose from the flat position with the pull stroke so I didn't think nothing of it. I have no idea how things are made. And so then the car goes away and it's, I think it's in New York or New Jersey and the roads are pretty rough for a lower GMC Jimmy out there. And the vibration, if you drove with the V in the up position, snapped all the motors (laughs) because they're plastic Mm. gears inside. I had no idea that's how they were built, but that was so difficult to service and I felt so bad for the people that had to service it. But those were the first uh, mistakes of learning motorization. So the F-250 truck had a circular motorization and I can't even remember how that thing, I think it was also a linear actuator because it didn't freely rotate. They had wiring mm-hmm. through a center tube and it rotated 270 degrees back and forth, but it looked like it kept rotating. And so it was a pretty big project, but uh, the execution I felt at the time wasn't what I wanted. And so that's, you know, that's kind of who and how I was and still am is the, you know, showiness is great. But if the 
quality of the execution isn't good enough. It goes back to mm-hmm, that Iaska mm-hmm. mentality, the Iaska rulebook. Yeah. yeah, it's a show car, and there's no technical judging of a show car. But I still always felt that that needed to be a higher level than it was. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. the year after that, um, we built a excursion which seems like it was in the 2000, so late 99, 2000, which is, again, it seems like we'd build the truck and then we build the enclosed version of it. So that's what we did with the Dakota, the, the Durango. Then we went from an F-250 to an excursion. And that was, a you know, another humongous canvas. And one of the things <laughs> I remember is like, man, we're building these ginormous, ginormous canvases. It's a lot of work and a lot of sanding. And that was the first year we brought out type R woofers. And with that truck, we put a, a lot. lot of woofers. <laughs> it was the same mentality of the F-250 because Alpine subs didn't make a lot of bass. This thing finally had so much bass it was more than we knew what to do (laughs) and it was crazy it had two tens in the center console underneath the plexiglass enclosure and our bent another bent plexiglass enclosure and had a bunch of woofers and these star trek looking amplifier racks with the prodding of mark facuda we started learning how to weld some pretty basic uh, steel frame racks and um that got some attention. I have no idea if that thing won any awards or not. But again, I hear, you know, other people that got into it and are very competitive and were trying to beat someone, something. And that's just never been me. It was either to outdo yourself from what you did before. Like that was what I felt our goal was, is to do something different and eye-catching and something that puts Alpine in a good light. But you know, I know of the Alpine Rockford rivalry that existed then and maybe to this day, but uh, being in marketing and not in sales, I didn't experience any of it. So I remember um, being at the show, meeting Brian Schmidt, checking out their car, and Brian was always super friendly and um, <laughs> showing me what they built. And I was like, oh my God, that's so awesome. You know, just that. First one I remember is probably the Frontier trucks that they had mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. theme in. I knew that Rockford had done previous, you know, trucks and Suburbans and show cars that were really clean and really well done. But that Frontier really was the first thing that I had saw that Brian was showing me. And I was like, man, this is so amazing. But again, I'm, I'm in that booth and talking to them. And then I still remember brian coming over in to alpine's area because alpine had a room right alpine always had a room and brian and mark Lowe walked in and i walk up and i'm like hey brian how's it going and they were very like yeah we're you know uh in the lion's den feeling to it and i just remember oh i, I guess <laughs> i guess it's a little different and i that's the first <laughs> time i realized what kind of rivalry there was but i was pretty not clued into it until kind of, Oh, I see how it is. And so, um, (laughs) it was very enlightening for me to listen to Mark's podcast because I, other than that time, I don't think I've ever met Mark Lowe and seeing how influential he is to the Mm -hmm. industry and how he viewed his role in all the things that he did is for the industry. I felt similarly as to what we did and Gary knows, but you know, Alpine, there was um, Gate. Do you remember Global Alpine Insti- 
to the yeah. technology, something like that. Something like yeah. that. And, you know, we had smaller iterations of that, but Alpine never had Top Gun. We weren't set up like Rockford was. And so there was no way of incentivizing what we were showing to a dealer base or Rockford, or, you know, Alpine only dealers or something like that there was nothing like that so every year at ces if people walked up to me i'd tell them exactly what we did we had a picture book like literally a picture book of developed photos <laughs> that i would you know put into a photo album and that i recall at the show every year being the most more even maybe even more so than the vehicle was the thing that people were clamoring to look at and standing in line to look at and flipping through the book. And I was like, oh, that's pretty interesting. So I put that together every year, <laughs> the sticky pages and the cellophane and yeah. putting that together. But that seeing how popular that was, I was like, oh, okay, I'll put a little bit more effort into showcasing what we did because, again, that puts us and Alpine in the best light and seeing what we did. So. So it goes from that, you know, now I can sense that the cars that we're making were getting some notoriety. And then Alpine decides that we're going to do the F number one status product for the first time. Right. So that's that was in my tenure there. And so we're coming out with a crazy processor and the head unit. and But those those items. And so when we were going to launch that, we're like, what should we put it in? And so we had some discussions of what we were going to do. And our feeling was that if we bought a vehicle, whatever vehicle it was, and it was a company-owned vehicle, that it would get thrashed because you didn't have any control over it. So right about that time, um, I had convinced marketing that we needed to bring Steve Brown down to Torrance and have him part of marketing. And so right, I'd say right around... I, can't, I don't remember the exact dates, but right around 2000, Steve moved down permanently to L.A. and he worked in marketing. Steve was way, you know, Steve competed with his legend and had the history of that. And I was like, hey, let's let's let Steve buy a car and we'll put all the F1 stuff in that. And so they bought it and they said, yeah, that's that's a good enough idea. And so we built Steve's M3 for mm -hmm. the F1 launch. And at first it was going to only be about an eight or sorry, a four month period. So we were working at a, as hot, fast of a pace as we could, but there was some sort of delay that I don't recall exactly what happened, but it got extended another four months. And so that's the longest I've ever and we've oh, wow. ever had. And so, you know, we were working pretty frantically in the beginning. So we had all this time to do something extra special, extra crazy. And that's that when that car showed up at finals, it was really amazing that the crowd that it drew. And I just remember like, wow, we did something you know pretty special with it. And so seeing that level of interest in something that we had built was pretty impressive and that is also, I still remember the first year going digital, digital photographs, digital photo book. I had a slideshow presentation at CES that showed the build and things like that. But 
The, Wasn't there a pedestal that went with the car? Was that that one that had the monitor on the pedestal with the? I don't think it was that, like that crazy. That Monitors were so expensive back then. I think it could have had a, you know, the display show company would make some of those things for us. And I, I swear it was gotcha. just a laptop. But it, regardless, yeah. it was one of the first times that I remember and still have, you know, the build books that we created. And so that's, you know, seeing what the power of building something special um, and getting, garnering the attention, still one-way street, having no idea what the coverage is. You know, the things that you would see is just how many magazines did it go into. And it's, a, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that car got a lot of press worldwide. I mean, in Finland and, you know, you see these magazines and I was like, I had a, we had pretty big stacks of different magazines. And so that became the value of what we did and really started getting us, you know, I didn't really relate the magazine coverage to being Mm well-known, but that Mm -hmm. and the, you know, interest in our techniques and whatnot was pretty interesting. So after that was the beginning of Hot Import Nights. Hot Import mm-hmm. Nights, I believe, started in Long Beach. <laughs> the One of the very yeah. first nights, I remember Alpine was supporting it, but I wasn't going. And my wife and I happened to live in Long Beach where the first Hot Import Nights was. And we tried to go to dinner. And I'm like, what are all these slammed Hondas doing in this parking lot? And we couldn't find parking. <laughs> and you open the door and get out and you just hear all this noise and music. And we peer out over the edge of the um, ledge of the parking complex. And you look down, there's the first hot import nights. And right in the middle of it's the restaurant we were trying to go to. So we just got back in the car oh, and gosh. just left and we didn't go to dinner. But that, you know, if people can relate to what hot import nights was coincided with when we did the RSX show car which had the mermaid painted on the side Mm -hmm. and had, you know, lighting and airbrushed interior, painted interior. And the reason, you know, we went from the M3, which is built for, you know, expert level, I ask a competition to the RSX, which we, as marketing group, we wanted to target the pre-driving crowd so we kind of that was me (laughs) hey man and it worked it worked it worked worked, right and so alpine you know when you do your marketing surveys and stuff and focus groups and whatever it was that alpine had a pretty stuffy image and we were we didn't want to target that anymore and so one of the things i remember you know, hearing pre-driving team as a target. And I was like, well, that's weird, but okay, that makes sense. And so when we did that, we actually teamed up with Wings West, which was um, mm-hmm. partner or, you know, big into the hot import night scene. So the funny thing is, I don't know who would have been in charge of it, but, you know, Honda's just down the street from where Alpine was. And we hear that there's these SEMA dollar cars and we're like, oh, they are? Let's reach out. You know, somebody reach out to Honda and find out if we can get one of those dollar cars. Well, we were so late to the game that they go, yeah, we still got an RSX that you can have, but it's brown. And we're like, and then we're like, we don't want a brown RSX. We don't have the time to paint it and do all the graphics. But we're like, oh, Wings West got the cool blue one. That's the one we want. Wings West doesn't do interiors, so we reached out to them and said, hey, would you want to let us, you know, work with you? And that was what the RSX became. We got the car, stripped it all down, 
did the interior and then they did the body kit and they coordinated with that was the first car that they coordinated with noah which was at the is a friend of billy longfellow from wings west at the time and he goes hey i know a friend he doesn't really paint cars but he um he does really cool artwork maybe he can Mm -hmm. paint the car and at first he turned down the chance to do it but billy turned convinced him to paint the car and so he came out the guy works well gary's met him he works really fast and he's really good and i was just like wow so the first one was either a freebie or somebody paid him but i don't think it was alpine but we looked at it and we're like that's pretty phenomenal especially you know the how I grabbing it was from the outside, you know, all previous Alpine cars had some stickering or some really standard graphics, but it wasn't that. And so we were like, that's pretty impressive. And they, um, it did its job. Funny story of that is one of the people that worked in marketing saw the mermaid on the side and goes, we can't have that. We need to repaint the car. And this is like three days before CES. And we're like, uh, that's not going <laughs> right. to happen. Yeah. Right. Like, but that's offensive. And we're like, uh, it's a little too late. So the president of Alpine Global came in, looked at it, and he's a tall, kind of stiff guy. And he goes, ha, ha, ha. And he gives us a thumbs up. And we're like, oh, okay. <laughs> so there it went to CES. And that's one of the, another year that it, you know, I honestly, I don't recall which years won best of show and which ones didn't. I don't know if I don't think the RSX won best of show and it really didn't matter. It did its job. It eventually was on CSI. I don't know who's watched Mm -hmm. CSI, but CSI season three, episode one. At the time, CSI. At what minute yes, mark, Chris? Exactly. At what minute mark? Stickler for details. But the funny thing, because I don't remember. I just remember watching CSI, and that's like 30 million viewers used to watch every episode wow. at the time. Wow. And so we didn't really coordinate because it really wasn't Alpine's car, but Wings West had supplied them a bunch of cars. And I hear, oh, there's, you know, we need to get the RSX ready so it could go to Vegas for a photo shoot or, you know, video shoot. And we're like, okay. So it goes. They made it the killer's car. They had wrote the script (laughs) where the, they, found that the tint, the broken glass had blue tint, which the car had, was the reason that the guy got caught or something like that. And I was like, and they do this slow-mo and they didn't take off the stickers, you know, because Alpine doesn't pay for that kind of marketing or whatever. Yeah. And I was like, yes, we did our job, you know. There, there's <laughs> Alpine in front of 30 million eyeballs. And so, anyways, that was a funny And just to clarify for the younger people listening, so the younger generation, way way younger than me, 2001, I believe, is when Fast and Furious came out. So that's kind of like what popularized and made companies like Wings West, Veilside, Gretty, like a household name, right? For people that had no idea, I mean, I'm speaking kind of for my generation, people that had no idea about this type of aftermarket equipment. And it kind of popularized it, made it mainstream. And then you guys start building these cars that are really grabbing to the people that have seen the Fast and the Furious and it popularized all of that stuff. So that's kind of like what got me super interested into the builds you guys started to do from this point forward. Because again, you're 
your key demographic, I don't know if it had to do it at all with Fast and the Furious and seeing what demographics watch the movie or anything like that. But I can say a thousand percent that that was the accelerant. And then that made me want to look more into the car audio scene or car interior scene or fabrication scene. And that's when I started seeing like the Alpine build after Alpine build. And I'm just like, Jesus Christ, this is so sick. And at this point, <laughs> I have my own car that I start tinkering with. The Eclipse. Yeah, yeah. In my garage, <laughs> I start tinkering with it. And I'm just doing stuff and kind of like, you know, your dad he sets up a little shop. I just work on my car. I work on buddy's cars. And that's kind of like what gets me into doing what I'm, you know, ultimately doing. That that was kind of a crazy time. And, and a lot of stuff really, really took off. And I feel like the extreme car audio stuff, the accelerant there, Matt, that you're saying was when they started to have hot import mm-hmm, nights as mm-hmm. a car show and yeah. you're trying to yeah. win a car show that everybody could lower their car. Everybody could put wheels on it. Everybody, you know, um, you know, modern image made the graphics packages like the, the sticker graphics popular, or they'd paint a car and push it. And then when it came to the interior, there was a lot of, you know, gizmachi stuff you could throw in but it really like the trunk Mm -hmm, builds mm -hmm. really became a really big deal to help push those cars and all the the fiberglass volcanoes and whatnots and then the the alpine doing the airbrushing on top of all of that just like it's like if you're gonna throw the kitchen sink at it this is (laughs) this is what you need to be top level so i remember starting off with hot import nights and then we had ncca shows and few people I mean, in the car show scene, we'll probably remember that, but it was the same thing. It was a point system. You travel all over the yeah. place. I mean, I went as far as Miami with my car at the time, and that's how serious I took it. And, uh, you know, it was... Yeah, Nopi yeah, it, yeah, and the Nopi all that shows stuff. in Atlanta. I mean, it was wild. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. Knowing my personality and my tastes and, you know being somewhat responsible for some of these things with the you know the (laughs) bright colors and the you know all paint things were pretty it was pretty funny but the way that some of that stuff works so the m3 leather interior you know very matched thematically to a higher end car and then going to something like the rsx you know one of the biggest reasons was running out of time and paint gaps are easier than material gaps and doing things that work <laughs> that way. And that's the God's honest truth as to why that went that way. And then, you know, I, I remember the Civic, that whole thing. If I had time and whatever, it wouldn't have been quite like that. It was just, you know, people, oh, I hate those paint explosions. Everything's painted. It was, it had to be done to a certain level that I was still satisfied with fitment wise. But then I, I, we did just didn't have enough control over how Noah would come in and paint things and, you know, making everything thematically join the way that I wanted to. But I, at a certain point I had to give up and well, that was my last car there anyways, but it was, there were just people for people who saw it and liked it, people that saw it and hated it. It was just one of those things that, uh, it was all about time and control. Like if you do a paint to paint part gap, it's pretty much tape and pretty easy. But once you start mm-hmm. getting into the different materials that 
gap is three-dimensional and gapping properly for something to fit. Yeah, it's just a millimeter. Yeah. How many rolls part. of Kent Tate do you think you've wasted in your life? Material oh. gapping. <laughs> oh, there's another. Thanks to Mark Fukuda, Kent. I used to know the number to Kent and my rep by heart. And that's how often I would call. You know, I haven't bought as many as what Brian has with mobile solutions but uh yeah definitely and i still even at my job today i have buckets of kent double side <laughs> tape <laughs> awesome stuff not almost irreplaceable so anyways how are we doing um i don't know if you guys have questions as i you know roll through these things but uh uh, we we much like I assume the audiences right now are captivated. just fixated on hearing yeah. the story. All right. Yeah, captivated. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, for me, I'm just rehashing some of these stories, and you know, here knowing what some of the behind the scenes type of stuff was, you know, why I left, yeah. all those things. But you know, the there was a lot of hours just to give people. I don't know what the perspective of people and what kind of man hours people think that some of these cars take. Maybe they've heard in Brian's pod or Brian's episode or whatnot but let's say m3 was over you know eight months of time so if you put four thousand man hours into something but it spans over eight months that's a lot of work yeah and but it spanned over a relatively long period of time in contrast let's say the rsx was built in four months because we didn't get that car until you know what, is, what would that be september or something like that there's always this finagling still still four thousand hours that, yeah, just three, much shorter three, time, three, that, time frame. exactly <laughs> and so the it for the rsx um that was in the three thirty five hundred man hour range but then the balance of time that i put into that car started becoming well over half i would say out of let's say thirty five hundred three thousand to thirty five hundred easily 2000 plus was my time and so then the civic rolls around and then same things happening where the balance of time put into it for whatever reason you want to give it was just it became overwhelming and i still loved it but there was a lot of stress involved with that ces doesn't move right there's no, hey, you know, the primer didn't cure the way we thought it was because it was a little cold or, you know, the prototype part didn't come until whatever. And so just making up for that time and still doing something that was as what we felt was impressive and to the build quality that I was willing to say was my work was, you know, just putting the balance of the time way more. When when it came to the planning stages for the mm -hmm. Civic and you had been through this progression year after year of trying to outdo the thing that you built the year before, mm -hmm. what was the, what was the brainstorming session yeah. like for that car? So, and, and where did, where did, awesome. where did it start yep. and how did it get <laughs> to where it, where you ended all up right. with all of yeah, that? So there was the recovery period after the RSX and you had a desk at Alpine, right? By Paseno. I probably had yes, your old exactly. desk. exactly. So yeah. sitting right there. I had your old computer, yeah. Yeah. so. <laughs> so Gary knows. It It was it's, it's his second Mac, yes. not the first one, yeah. I don't think. I think it had been replaced it somewhere along the line. It was not the brown line, Mac that you got. So, nope. so the way that it nope. was. My logo was in the correct direction. Yeah, so when we brought Steve down, you know, everyone had this cubicle. But me and Steve would, you know, brainstorm and talk about things so much. I was like, 
take out this wall. So I don't know if it was still that way, but literally there was no even divider between Steve and I's desks. And so I remember swinging around and be like, all right, we're going to do this again this year. And he's like, yeah, let's do it. And so the concept was now that hot import nights and fast and the furious and those things were becoming so popular. The idea was what would be for that kid, the just the most ideal situation. And we're like, well, like a, driver single driver centric car and so we're like huh okay let's think about that well in you know in iaska doing when we were doing it with a two-sided driving there were a couple people that attempted center drive type things but we were like oh wouldn't it just sound awesome if you're a center drive too and so we were thinking you know kind of it was kind of the blend of both of those things and when you look at the mechanics of how that Civic was built, it had a cable shifting system so you could move the shifter to the side. You know, there were all these. It had a really flat floor behind the back seat. It didn't have a center hump because obviously it's front wheel drive, but still had no center hump. And we looked at it and we're like, oh, yeah, we could totally do this. And so that was part of it. But it was really the. Um, single young hot import nights kids biggest dream is to have this center you know just everything surrounding you and then we wanted those tentacle looking things with the gauge pods to surround you but then how would you get in the car and we're like oh okay we didn't want to put them up the door panel so we made it so it would motorize back you get in the car and then you know obviously it was a little bit hard to get into but uh <laughs> We came out with a 15 that year, and so we're like, oh, yeah, this thing's got a slam. So the ports for the 15s were the, in the side bolster areas and ported right next to you, and uh, there were 12s in the kick panels, <laughs> which is really ridiculous. <laughs> but it had yeah, a front stage, five monitors. You know, we talk about the monitor explosions, but, you know, it was a wide panoramic uh, display screen in the front, and things like that and there were so many things in that car that just time didn't allow for and it definitely wasn't you know again my cup of tea but I was able to separate what you know people had a tough time agreeing to what we were doing like you know you know Todd Van Zandt he's like eh, what are you guys doing and I was like just trust us you know we're not doing it for you and we're not doing it for me we're doing it for this target uh, demographic that you know we're trying to target like matt yeah. and so that that was really <laughs> what we did you know what it boiled down to and along with it came a lot of work a lot of sanding and a lot of wiring so i think from the outside looking in it was a pretty cool progression to see like let's let's say that i think the excursion was probably where i started paying attention to, to Alpine builds and then you look at the M3 and obviously a great combination of fiberglass work and some creative new ideas and some dashboard work and some some serious work up in the kick panel areas and and that attention to detail that went into the sound quality side and and kind of tied it all together and that I think was uh, about the point where the the vision of a daily driver souped up left the building, yeah, right? And from there, 
from there it was like okay you're shifting gears into that the rsx was the same thing tons of tons of paint work and really the kind of pushing of that stuff with a little bit of work in the dash if i remember right and then you get to the civic and it is just it was the first no panel left untouched right like to it, in my mind that's the first car where you, there was no stock mm-hmm. piece left that's in the car that's funny to hear every that. surface had been touched that's funny to hear that because m3 on it was gutted interior so the m3 was an entirely built from scratch dash was the whole dash everything. built we we the- Really? I don't remember that. So the M3, not to get too much into the weeds, was uh, we built, like Steve built the air vents, like the air venting, air conditioning vent system under the dash. The whole idea on the M3 was to make a symmetrical dash because the BMWs were very driver-centric dashes, right? And so we wanted to make a symmetrical dash with kick panels. It had welded steel kick panels, and six and a half down there and tweeters and the a pillars we did a month of sound tuning before we even decided where to put the speaker and so the m3 had we pulled out the glove box and we put a type r10 in the dash facing down in place of the sub box or sorry instead of the glove glove and glove compartment and so every every inch of the interior of the M3 was done from scratch. We bought five five series door handles, incorporated that instead with a latch mechanism, steel work for the center console, steel work for all the amp racks. It just there were two exposed bolts in the rear that attached the trim panel, the sub panel, cover panel, the subwoofer into the sub box. Like that was another thing that we drove. I don't know if people mm-hmm. see that in our builds was no exposed screws and really no wiring exposed either. But that was kind of the motto of how we built things. And I've heard you or somebody else saying, you know, inlay on top of inlay on top of inlay. Mm-hmm. And that's just how things had to be in order to not show, you know, not show a lot of screws or how'd you make that? How'd you mount that? Things like that. What was it? Six, six or eight tubes of uh, goop per car. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, there was the E6000 or Shugu or goop, right? Yep. That was from the yep. guy that would laser. We didn't, you know, when we would get laser work done, he was this master model maker and his name was Mark Valentine. And he goes, I go, yeah. And he goes, oh, you should try this Shugu. And he gave me a bottle and he goes, yeah, it sticks to anything. And that was the beginning for me. I still have a case of it at work. Every, you know, got to keep stocked. So, yep. yeah. Um, yeah. So but that, that civic, was. That Civic was insane, though. Like you were talking about all the monitors. I remember when that thing came out and I saw it in a magazine. I think the model number is kind of escaping me. I want to say it was like a TMEM 770 monitor, maybe. Yeah, very good. 750 yeah. or like 760, but yeah, somewhere in that range. Something yeah. like that. So the second I saw that is when I did sun visors in my Eclipse using that monitor. I did two monitors in my Lambo doors. So the monitors would be straight when the Lambo doors were up. <laughs> and then I put them in the back panels like... At that point in time, anywhere that you could shove a monitor was fair game. Yeah. I remember going to shows, you'd see them in like the, uh, 
in like the side mirrors, you'd see them in tail lights and like turn signal lights. And you're like, how's there even a monitor there? But they were, it was the <laughs> monitor craze. It's probably yeah. because of that car, yeah. the Civic. <laughs> we started a trend yeah. we didn't want to start. But, you know, again, the whole point is you bought some yeah. Alpine monitors because yeah. you saw them yeah. in the car. And that yeah. was kind of the game at the time. And, you know, Gary did some cool stuff later with monitors that I would have never thought of. And so that's, you know, kind of, kind of handed the baton off at that point, getting out. And, you know, the way that I looked at it was, you know, Alpine doesn't sell body kits. Alpine doesn't sell wire. It only, you know. So I really was an interior um, concentrated thought processor, you know, thinker at the time. And so other than coordinating with Wings West to do the paint jobs and the things, I didn't feel like I had the time after what the team that, you know, we had and the way that things were going that I wasn't willing to spend that much time on the exterior and then introduce, you know, Gary Bell and Mike Vu. But what about no, the X5? Well, well, I was gonna say, didn't you work on Vu, the X5? That was Vu. No, no I was. Uh, so the X5 had a very long life because it was a VP's car <laughs> that we had done. I think that year we did the M3. Alpine used to have the showy car and then a um, more subdued second, practical, yeah, practical second yeah. car, and that went through its time. We hired. Todd Matsubara to work on the X5 in its original show car debut. And he built a clean, you know, reserved system for that to showcase certain products. And then that was shown at uh, the same year, I believe, as the Civic. But then, then we know what happened to the M3 or <laughs> to the X5 when it became pretty pretty crazy. So did the same airbrush guy yeah. do all the Alpine cars? Like the same... Yes person did the x5 as as all the yeah. other cars yeah yeah and then uh up until and they we kept like so after chris left after the civic we'll, we'll continue that story and where it goes from there but then vu came in and did the mini cooper uh with mm -hmm. steve and then the x5 both noah airbrushes and then my first year there was Sinister Six and he did the, that was the first like real kind of deviation back of, okay, we've done like the, the year before was very classy with the X5 mm -hmm. with all the artists down mm -hmm. the side. And uh, the big joke that we told was that, you know, the, the X5 they had in the Mini Cooper, they'd done a decent amount of work on the outside of the car. And the joke was that I turned to Brownie and said, you know, well, since we decided to build the whole body on the outside of this car, we should we should at least paint it black, you know, just joking <laughs> about how much torture that we were putting ourselves through. Right. Um, that we would we would paint it black. And I, I'm expecting Steve to object. And he's like, that's a good idea. And I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> here we one go. Ideas. And, and that one had like the the darkest theme of any Alpine car. It was really out of character, but we wanted something that was like not what people would expect. And then the year after we broke that trend and no airbrushing. Mm. And we just went with that crazy paint job. And uh, the RLS was painted by someone who Chris mm -hmm. works with now. Daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. On that a daily I work basis. Day yeah. To it's day full circle. The, yeah. A couple guys from Honda are going to help come paint this car. Okay. <laughs> and then here I am been working with them. Um, one of the things also is, you know, let's not get too far yes, ahead, though. The Fast and Furious <laughs> cars, you know, I, the one that I so I've never watched the full Fast and Furious movie beginning to end. But um, like the pink 
S2000, some girl drives, oh, right? And then some other ones. Yeah. Sorry for my fast and furious ignorance. But uh, those were all painted by Noah. So the way that it went was that Noah painted the RSX, right? The first one kind of, you know, for a very small fee re- relative to what he was making. But then whatever, Universal or whoever the company that makes Fast and Furious, I think it was the second one, right? Hired him to paint the whole fleet of cars. And he came back the next year when he painted the, <laughs> the <laughs> Civic, came up in a uh, Lexus S, you know, GX, the big SUV. And I was like, wow, <laughs> what a difference between for one year, you know. But that's how huge, you know, not, nothing to against his talent. It was just he was so fast, so good, but he did all those cars. And so, yeah, that that definitely I've seen. I've yeah, seen and an now interview. now he's a Disney artist. Yes, I've seen an interview now, where wow. he does, you know, say that the work that he did for Alpine put him into that world. So that was pretty cool. Good for him. OK, so so you're sick of the hours. <laughs> Gosh, this sounds. This story sounds familiar to <laughs> yes. me. Um, you're sick of the the long hours and the the busting your butt, and you just decide you're gonna leave, or does something else? So what all? What what was the cocktail that made that happen? So there was some things that went down with the RSX towards the end that made it re- very difficult to finish, and um, it was it was those crazy i think four days straight to finish the rsx and rsx or rsx first Uh, m3 okay had the eight month span that i was telling you about the rsx was much more compressed and when you commit to a certain amount of work and a certain amount of things you know Mm -hmm. you at least from my perspective you expect a certain amount of effort to achieve those goals no corn you know not no corners but it's it, you're representing alpine it's got to be at a certain level and i you know i've been doing that even at that age i've been doing it a long enough time that i had to i knew what certain things were going to take to get to a certain level there's always like i said murphy's law small side note is uh mr mark Fakuda talks kind of reminiscently about el film and el lighting uh-huh. that car we ordered el lighting and we had to order it from some guy in new jersey and when it came back, I sent him pristine patterns and chipboard, folded them up, send it out to him. He had to, you know, laminate the EL film and cut it. And I get it back and it looked like a kindergartner had cut it <laughs> and nothing fit. Oh. It was short. It was long. And I had to redo everything. And I was like, this is an absolute nightmare so i had to redo it all and so my experience with el lighting was not awesome and so i was like <laughs> oh it drives me crazy but we redid it we made it work so i had a lot of things with lighting but anyways the rsx lighting or rsx finish was pretty chaotic and that's why i was there were a lot of nights in the last year, year and a half where I was like, I need to make another move doing something else. You know, I didn't know if I was going to stick it out another year to do the Civic. But um, that in the beginning, you know, it went OK. But towards the end, it ran into the same problems with the imbalance of uh, time on the build. And so I was just I gave notice. I have a note here. I gave notice on my son's second birthday, December 27th. 
And uh, it was pretty like jaw dropping. They couldn't believe that I was quitting. And I said they tried to change my mind. But just to give you a little bit of time span is I gave notice on 27th of December. My last day at Alpine was March 31st of 03. So it was a three month uh, notice. And, you know, I didn't want to leave Alpine in a bad position. That's when you know, they were, I guess they talked to Mike. I didn't have anything really to do with that, but, um, I didn't want to leave them on bad terms, but the, one of the stories is that that's pre CES, right? Before the civics even done. I said, yep, this is my last car. This is my last year. And it's kind of sad because when I started Alpine, how the first five, six years were so, it was family. All we did was everything was Alpine centric and it was just, I couldn't believe what I had gotten into and the family and the support, the parties and just the camaraderie of everything. And I thought I was going to work there for the rest of my, you know, rest of my career. And then when some, some of those other things started to happen, I was like, oh no, I've put all my, you know, eggs into this basket, but what do I need to do? And so there were a lot of, uh, late nights of thinking, you know, what my next move would be, but left Alpine that March. And then I ended up working with Todd Matsubara at his shop for not quite a year, but that didn't work out either. And so if, uh, so that's that CES Alpine didn't want me to say that I was leaving and I kind of understood why, but I was, it was just like they, it would have been a kind of a big news story while we're releasing the car and mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. quitting. And so I, I completely agreed to that and I didn't say anything, but it was kind of to my detriment because the year after I went to CES and people, you know, they were like, Hey, Oh, you, you're not at Alpine anymore. I walked the show for a day and I got set. 18 job offers in one day. And I was just like, wow, this is pretty crazy. But, you know, I've never been about the money or anything like that. So it was, um, it was flattering to say the least, but I was going through a pretty big midlife crisis at 30 years old. And so that's when I was like, all right, what do I need to do? You know, I got to try to do a job on my own. So the funny thing was at the time, I started thinking that I wanted to create a training business. At the time, Brian was still at Innovative Audio up in Seattle, and I was trying to do it, but because of my life situation, it was really hard to concentrate. And it's, I'm not a good person when everything's wide open, like just do something or make anything you want. Is If there's no parameters, I can't do anything. <laughs> and so I was trying to, you know, create a training program or something and I probably have notes somewhere but I just couldn't get it off the ground and there's a shop in Southern California from back in the day called Competition Soundworks. Uh, Jason Lee was the owner and he's one of the guys that I met when that first shop that I worked at Elite Systems had the IASCA shows we didn't have enough money to have the RTA and the printer, but he had one. So every time we had a show, we had Jason come down with his RTA and printer and he would run the RTA and SPL lanes. And so I knew Jason from them and he's kind of said, Hey, you know, you need to, um, 
if you want to, what do you want to do? You want to come work for me? And I was like, well, I kind of been trying to do the school thing. He's like, yeah, we could, you know, do a school. We have a second shop that's closed to the public. You could work there. And I was like, well, this is a pretty intriguing opportunity. So I always said I was a salmon that I went, you know, opposite of most guys in the Southern California area. I went from manufacturer to a small shop. And Competition Soundworks actually had a history. We counted back. There were 18 guys that worked at the shop and got industry jobs. And so I was the one guy that went back, went from the manufacturer to the small <laughs> shop. And so the reason why, you know, like I tell the story is at the time I was the Alpine guy, right? Or at least one of the Alpine guys. And being there and being, you know, me, Steve, and whatever we learn from each other and taught ourselves, uh, prodding from Mr. Mark Fukuda, a lot of definitely influence from his, uh, suggestions and his fast trainings that I got to sit in on. But again, information was very scarce and we just figured out how to make things with each other and from just experience. And so it was very slow progress in my opinion. But then, so I started working for Competition Soundworks, and Competition is a Rockford dealer and a JL dealer. And so that's when, you know, now I get to meet meet and, you know, go to Brian's trainings because we're a Rockford dealer. And, you know, I sit in on those and you see crazy stuff that he was doing. And then also JL Audio dealer and Bill Hamsey and Gary Martin, I, would, I met um, Bill Hamsey and we'd talk pretty often about certain things and, you know, just this information sharing. So I was kind of felt that I was cooped up at Alpine, you know, with what I was learning. And once I went to competition, just the information flow with Brian and Bill and all these other people just was insane. It really was. So I would say I learned so much being able to go into that world and, you know, learning and just interfacing and exchanging ideas with Brian and those guys um, really made me and let me push even further in fabrication. So the gist of the story is that, you know, leaving Alpine, you know, yes, I was a sound guy and I got into it for music and I ask and all those things. But in the long run, what really has held my interest and piqued my um, motivation is the fabrication side of things and just continually trying to learn to fabricate and all these different techniques and processes. And the other, other guy that's uh, super influential that I haven't mentioned yet is Scott Whitehead from mm -hmm. innovative audio before and then benchmark motoring. Now I haven't mm -hmm. talked to him in quite a long time, but when I was at uh, competition Soundworks, uh, we had some back and forth. He sent me a package to put together and install in one of uh, the customer's porches and it was like flat packed <laughs> and then you know i don't think i even got instructions but it, everything was cnc cut and it just it didn't need instructions it was so amazing and <laughs> blew my mind and i was like wow this is how real, you know, and so there were just so many motivating factors working that competition, even though it was a small shop, no public, you know, we had built stuff for uh, the Fertitta brothers who are the UFC owners and so, you know, a lot of high-end clientele that we did work for. So did get to work on high-end cars, but um, 
just the work and the knowledge and building the shops. Some people in the industry might know, I know a lot about dust collection. You know, I built dust collection and <laughs> shops and all these things and wrote articles about it and stuff like that. But it's just the knowledge on the fabrication side really blossomed there and just all the yeah, things. You did skip over the whole, whole part of your install bay remodels. At <laughs> yes, Alpine. I did. So that goes back to, yeah, <laughs> Mr. Mark Fakuda. So here's a, you know, sorry to skip around a little bit. So that first week that I was Alpine, right? I need, of course, everyone needs a 10 mil socket, right? 10 millimeter socket. So I opened the drawer. They're just rolling around in there. Not organized, no nothing. It took me half an hour to find the 10 millimeter socket, right? Then you need to go get a drill, the cordless drill. So you grab one drill. One's a Bosch. Battery's dead. Then there's no other, ba- you know, you have to charge that battery and wait. Well, what's the other battery or what's the other drill? It's a Makita. So there's two different brand batteries with one battery each that you have to charge and wait for. And I was like, this is absolutely nuts. And so I was pretty unhappy with it. You know, did some smaller upgrades to the shop, bought things, organized things to a smaller level. But the time that I went to Mark Fukuda's shop and saw what the fast, there's some images on his Instagram, but it's the way Mark does things. The only the best. And when I got to visit, it blew my mind what that guy Everything mm-hmm. the guy does blows your mind, but I just was so, so absolutely impressed. So went back to Alpine, got the budget and got the time to rebuild the shop to, from what it was to at least a semblance of acceptable router tables, dust collection tables. It's again, really small, but we had, you know, much more working space, more organized hardware and things like that. So how was it by the time you got there gary it was you know there were things that it was a disaster (laughs) um no it was it it was well planned out it was well thought out um it had just been used and abused for many gigantic builds and it was showing its wear and so we we redid it at one point and um, in the install base side just literally ripped everything out except for i think like the a couple of the or the row of cabinets down each wall, uh, the upper cabinets stayed and we did all new work surfaces and, uh, steel cabinets down the two side walls and drawers all over the place. And yeah, it was, it was fun to redo, but, um, yeah, but it was a good, it was a good workable space and it was nice to have the, you know, the suction table room and the, like kind of the sanding room and the, you know, that at that point that was the biggest well i mean it's still the biggest dust collection no i guess when i went to work for the display company we had bigger dust collection but it was the first serious 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 dust collection uh system i'd ever seen in the first time a router table dust collection could ever keep up with my with your my mess mess. yeah that was Yeah. yeah i remember having that dust collection put in and they cored a 14 inch hole through the concrete wall which was pretty amazing at the time and but then when the guy's running the ducting into the panels, he's just using the sawzall with these, you know, crazy looking, oh, not gosh. even round holes. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. But yeah, it's, I'm a pretty picky guy to a certain extent, but I have a dose of reality when pickiness has to go away and the project has to get done. So um, that yeah. was pretty crazy. Did you, was the paint booth there already yes, when you so got there? 
I had the paint booth put in again, pre-internet, trying to find a company. How do you just look up paint booths? Who puts in paint booths? It was really, <laughs> really difficult to... Uh, so we had this closet slash room that doubled as a paint room, but we wanted a little bit more <laughs> paint, paint, paintability, I guess, so... Oh, was the oh the old paint room was the one that the pin router was in, right? And you put the shop bot in there, so yeah, that put the shop that bot, used yeah. to be the yep. paint room slash smoking room. So there was a glass window that always had a piece <laughs> of wood against it, so that if you were uh, taking a smoke break, you could be inside there and turn it on. From what I understand, I turn never put the collection yeah. on. So yeah, uh, so the paint booth got put in, and so. The, what was the biggest gripe for you with the paint booth? Oh, people just coming in and ruining paint I, guns. That ooh, was the, that was the biggest one for us. Just leaving, leaving primer, crap, yes, pro, poly I primer in the yes, gun. That, that, we threw away more guns. That, that was oh. definitely the case. But one of the other things was that it wouldn't fit a car, right? And I specifically oh, yeah, yeah. designed it so that we wouldn't be able to fit a car so no one could think it's there weekend or after hours spot to bring their car in and touch it up so i purposefully bought a yeah. paint booth that was too small to put a car in because i didn't want that to have, even be an issue so have you ever heard the story from when i was there and we got busted for the paint booth Ooh, no though i can't i we'll have to figure out how many years apart yes. it was so we twice a year would have an inspection yep. of the paint booth and the AQMD person, the dude would come by, coolest dude in the world, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Comes in one day, and he's got a trainee girl with him. Oh, I have heard this. Please <laughs> tell it again. And we're going through, and we you have to show him that you have high-volume, low-pressure guns, and you've got to go over your uh, your your materials yep. book and all of these things. And she... We're just chit-chatting because the AQMD guy was like a car guy and always wanted to know what was going on, what we were building, all that kind of stuff. And the the girl's like, I got it. And we're like, what What do you What do you mean you got it? She's like, you guys tried to trick me. And we're like, what are you talking about? And she's like, I don't remember what the number was, but it's like the booth is supposed to have 12 filters and it only has nine. <sighs> and somehow it had been inspected for like whatever it was, eight, nine, 10 years without anybody ever picking up that the permit didn't match the number of filters no in the booth. Way. And because of the trainee came in one day and he let her go, she figured it out and we had to rip the whole wall of filters out and a whole new structure put in to handle the the correct amount of, of filters. Wow. Yeah, it was a square because you were in California. Filters. Yes. It's, <laughs> if you yeah. weren't in California, that wouldn't have been an issue. Yeah. Especially yeah. Southern California oh, and we used to have has the, its own special rules. Oh yeah, crushing Bondo cans and putting them in hazardous waste bins yep. and yep, good times. Okay, so you're at competition, yep. Soundworks, and you're getting some growth again. You're being around new people and seeing new things. And what? How? How does that story? Wrap? Yeah. So one of the things I guess for this audience was uh in one of the jobs that uh we got when i left alpine was uh the honda civic tour so honda has a series of civics that they would 
they'd promote a band, the band would customize a car, then, you know, some manufacturers in or aftermarket companies, tuners and whatever, would stylize a car and then they would give away, I don't know, up to 10 of these uh, Civics at um, their concerts. I don't know. I don't remember the methods that they did, but they would give away these Civics. And so there were contracts to build certain cars. And so right after I left Alpine uh, at Todd Matsubara's shop, we built some. But then at Competition Soundworks, we got the offer to do the next tour set of Civics. Let's say it's five or six. So there was a job to make multiples of a certain type of car. So now I'm thinking, all right, now I know we're ahead of time that we're going to build some uh, multiple cars. So I started, you know, thinking about templating and patterns and, you know, just trying to make it more efficient to build multiple cars. And so we did that. And then that was one of my first years, you know, out from Alpine and working at competition. And they had the 12 volt uh, mobile electronics magazine installation uh, voting. And so somehow, you know, I'm on the top 12 list, let's say. And I was like, oh, how'd that happen? Because I didn't know how the really the process works, right? <laughs> and so... Back in, mm-hmm. back in the rep nomination yeah, days. Rep no, it was a rep nomination day, right? And so I, they go, hey, you need to put together... Uh, portfolio and i'm like it was pretty last minute so i'm like okay i guess this is what i'm working on i put together you know another picture book and i don't know some wiring diagrams and got maybe a letter recommendation and so sent it in thought nothing of it and so they're like well it started getting a little fishy because the owner of competition's like hey chris you're gonna go out to knowledge fest and i said i don't know you're not sending me so i guess not and then he goes oh yeah we think you should go okay so i fly out so i get ticket and i i believe it was in louisville so i fly out there and uh they call out the top you know top 12 guys onto stage but of course i'm yato so i'm and the stage is small so i'm standing in the dark on the side and this year's winner is i'm just like i wonder who it's gonna be chris yato and i was like what i'm wearing a t-shirt like a long sleeve (laughs) t-shirt and i'm like what and so it was pretty funny so there i am i win installer of the year in what 2005 and sorry matt i've heard your stories and jeremy carlson's stories of how much effort got put into getting you know winning that trophy and how you know how much it meant to you know a lot of great people have won and i was just like how did this happen so that was one of the surprise instances well, to be fair you put in the effort all the years prior <laughs> yeah right? i guess yeah you put in plenty of effort yeah it just it wasn't was on a, the presentation for that yeah. exact award but didn't so, you win back to back no, so that's kind of the funny thing is the year after I was like, oh, if I put some effort, maybe I could win this again. I think Pat Holdaway from Speakerworks is the only one that okay. won twice or something. I don't know if it was back to back, but that's from the old magazine days, so I don't know how to look that up, but that's what I recall. But um, I thought, yeah, if I put some serious effort, I could win it again. So the next year I'm doing clay you know automotive clay sculpting i'm doing pressed grills that i learned from you know scott at benchmark we're doing the pretty you know plaster molding 
just a bunch of pretty cool stuff. So I made a mm-hmm. pretty strong uh, portfolio. And that those years, they used to tell you who was winning the popular vote, I guess, you know, by numbers, like this week or whenever it was, mm-hmm. how many people. And surprisingly, I was at the top of the list quite a few times. So I was like, oh, I might have a good chance, but I didn't win. And that's, you know, it's a it's a editor or a group judge choice. So that was okay. But I was like, okay, as long as I'm in the top 12, I guess that's fine. But one mm-hmm. of the funny... Who'd, who'd you lose to? Who'd you <laughs> Who lose, to? lose to? The second year, I think Luke Gray. He used to work at the Specialist. From oh what gosh, I think. yeah, yep, Specialist, yeah, something yep. like that. So you know, he took it pretty. Ser- you know, he he took those shows pretty seriously. Not me in a t-shirt yeah. off stage, but um, <laughs> he just know. sipped his drink. If he's listening to this podcast right now, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the those are the things, and you know, like I said, not particularly competitive. I always want to put my best foot forward, but if I don't win, I don't win. It's it's fine by me. So uh, you know, the the knowledge fest shows were great to you know see the people, um, people that you get to hang out with. Like one of the guys I haven't seen in forever is uh, Jeremy Katz. You know, I met him. Yeah. Boy, he made an impression on me when we were out there because he's so <laughs> crazy. But yeah, we got to hang out and got you know had fun with him. One of the side notes with him is that I'm. Uh, Pretty good friends with Ben O from Car Audio Magazine when that was still around. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's still one of my good friends to this day. But at the very end, I had seen uh, Jeremy's uh, Mercedes SL that he mm-hmm. had built. And yeah, I don't know I how I got to too. see it. Either he showed me or we saw pictures. And I was like so impressed. I was like, man, this guy's doing just amazing work. And then I talked to Ben about it and he goes, Hey, you know, I go, have you seen? He's like, yeah, I might have heard something about that car. And I go, that is the nicest car built in that year. You need to, you know, have it in the magazine. And he goes, really? I'll take another look at it. And so he looks at it and goes, oh, okay. So he sent the photographer out there. Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny because I don't remember this, but my name is tagged as the writer of the article for that SL. And I was like, did I write it? I have such a bad <laughs> memory. I don't remember. But. That was the last ever print edition of Car Audio Magazine was Jeremy's. I remember I remember oh. seeing that in the magazine. That was really impressive. Yeah. Like all the just the work and the styling and the upholstery mm-hmm. and everything about that car, you know, bitching car and whatnot. But and I see you know, I looked it up and I was like, Oh, written by Chris Yotto. Did I really write that? <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> I used to do the, you know, some how to builds in yep. Car Audio Magazine and do some reviews and he- reviews here and there for Ben, but not much of a writer. And you'd occasionally show up for Poker Night at Ben's yes, house. Yes, that was fun. Um, the trifecta <laughs> shows, right? You remember oh, Ben's yeah. trifecta shows. So yeah, yeah, there's kind of a parallel story as to later on things in my life. But I think my, during my competition Soundworks days, one of the other highlights was when Brian calls me, Brian Schmidt calls me and goes, hey, Chris, do you have time and whatever? And I said, what are, what are we doing? And he goes, oh, I have a job at Sony to build a car for Sony. But, you know, one of my guys, you know, who I was going to have helped me dropped out and he can't make it. Can you go? And I was like, OK, so here's Brian, you know, been to his trainings. We're friendly. I haven't worked with him and he's, you know. Great guy, obviously super talented. So I was like, okay, sure. So I took that week off. And so we go down to San Diego where I used to work um, 
used to live down in that neck of the woods, the Sony. And we built uh, Ladanian Tomlinson's mm-hmm. Range Rover, his wife's Range Rover. Yep. And that's the first, you know, first time or really the only time that I worked with Brian. But it was just a really nice experience because pretty much every project that I'd done until that point, I was the main point person doing the thinking, doing the whatever. And here's Brian, you know, a next level thinker has everything dialed. We get there. Certain things are pre-cut, you know, things were um, planned out and I just had to be the support guy and work, you know, work as hard as I can to help get things done. The meals were catered. We stayed at a nice hotel. It was being filmed and it was a really cool experience and it paid really well. Worked with um, Mike Bryceland and and Jason Siner. And so, oh yeah. yeah, so got to meet and work with those guys, and you know Brian was leading the crew, and it was it was a really good experience. So that was one of the highlights, and you know getting to know Brian better, and started having the bond with Brian even more there. So that was uh, really impressive. So competition was a lot of car audio had the economic downturn even before the financial market crash. So competition went out of business in, I'd say, 07, so a year before the mm-hmm. financial crash. And uh, so now I didn't have a job. And so we, I partnered up with a guy, and we were working out of the Vertical Doors building, and we created a... <laughs> I was thinking when yes, Matt when Matt was door. talking earlier about his Lambo Lambo doors, door. I'm like, Chris used to work out of land, vertical or doors. vertical doors. So, did you actually have like vertical doors branded? I vertical did. Doors? Yeah. So wow. And I'll, I'll say this: so one one of the struts busted when I the, this was the probably two or the shocks. Yeah, yep. yeah. One of the struts like broke and the door fell oh. and it hit. It hit the the side skirt, which was molded into the car. So it's not like oh. it was easy to replace. It was perfectly molded into the car. Oh, messed it all up. So that's when the me and me was like, well, you can really only buy these in a set. So let's just do a suicide door. And I had one suicide door, one Lambo door. I kept the <laughs> Lambo door on the good side. Yeah. Is that how so it the happened? suicide door <laughs> is, and it, it kind of sucked because like the monitor was still set up so it's like side to sideways so it it doesn't yeah it doesn't work but it was still you can't see it as much that way at that point on the car show scene you never saw somebody that had one door one way and one door the complete opposite way so i mean i feel like it worked in my favor but it was vertical doors it was yeah yeah, so i wore so my partner at the time (laughs) knew the owners of vertical doors it was out in it's you know, inland LA in the city of Corona. And we sublet from them and we built a small shop in there. And uh, it was, yeah, got to watch those guys make those things all day long. And it was the the owner and his dad actually had another business in there. It was They were really good to us and treat us really well and uh, spent the time in there. Um, I don't know. Gary knows about the Silverado I built there. There was a, there was a, customer that we knew i built a couple cars there this is the era of fiberglass forums and 12 volt insider forums and i'm not much of a facebooky you know social media type guy but i was like hey you know maybe i should some put some work on there so made put some build photos and 
photos of those builds in the forums and that cut a decent amount of traction but uh built a pretty crazy silverado there with uh, jl gear and i can't even remember the rest of it but yeah jl and um dynaudio gear and it was pretty pretty impressive but uh the owner is that the one where everything was in the bed and there was like the acrylic that you could see into everything yeah there was uh there was stair-stepped stair-stepped uh jl amps in the back of the bed 413 w7s in the custom enclosure double wall birch ply water jet aluminum adapter plates because the w7s you know are so unique on how they mount um ported through into the interior three alternators four odyssey batteries that's the only car and it was a diesel so it was the only car that i ever played at full volume at idle and the (laughs) voltage didn't budge and you can barely see because you're you know it's so loud it was so (laughs) impressive but the customer wasn't happy because it took too long and that's so kind of the thing that i think of when i listen to your podcasts and you in particular matt is like the way that you know you have your client base and you've cultivated this client base and you know how to talk to the people i've never had any of that and i had worked so hard on this silverado it looked great it sounded great and you know working that hard and just like eh. he actually didn't get paid for the last portion of the vehicle because he said it took too long and that was just Mm. like i'm done and so because of that experience I, I think was the last there were other ones so in southern california when you know you have our reputation of being able to fix things with the rep firms and things like that is like some other shop did a really poor job with this customer and now they're really mad who can fix it Cristiano <laughs> gets a call and i'm like okay yeah, I mean that's happened. That's, that's when they find you. Yes. <laughs> that's when they find you. When and they so, you they know, got ball screwed players, over, all sorts and, of people uh, that have, you know you. that have money, bought it somewhere else, was weren't happy with it, and when you tell them it's going to cost X amount more, right? Fixing stuff t- is even worse. They get upset, and I'm like, I'm not looking at person that took your money and did a bad job. Someone else is, and that just kept happening over and over. Mm, and yeah, I was just, I, I couldn't that. cultivate what you cultivated, and I was just like, this just isn't where I'm putting too much effort into it for what it is. And so, kind of the funny story is that I, you know, start looking at the job sites and whatnot, and. I'm like, what kind of job can I get with my experience? I don't have my degree because I dropped out of school. You know, I have this weird car audio background, but it's not, you know, that provable. And so I just put in something and I get a call one day and they're like, hey, we're looking for a guy like you. You know what? You know, can you come in? And I was like, "Okay." it was a job to service Disneyland amusement park rides in Tomorrowland. And so what happened was uh, they, I mean, I had never, you know, all my other submissions or resumes never, never even got answered. Right. And this one, like literally I put it at 11 at night and nine o'clock the next morning, I'm getting a call. I'm like, wow, these people are interested. So I drive down and they interview me and they're like, oh yeah, we'll help you write your resume. You know, we'll get you in. Cause it was a placement agency for this, uh, for the job. And so I was like, okay. So they helped me write and they're like, okay, you're good at 12 volt, you know, troubleshooting, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, I was writing some stuff and they go, well, what's your experience with computers? And I said, I'm okay with computers, but not really a PC guy. Just don't like all the servicing and, you know, 
maintenance that you got to do. I'm kind of a Mac guy. And they're like, oh, okay. And so they submit my resume or, you know, whatever the thing is to Disney. And they go, you know, the last guy was really bad with computers and he claimed maybe he was decent. So we want to interview you in person. So there was like a little bit of a delay because of that concern. So what happens is right, like literally the day, two days in between that, um, my, you know, I was in touch with Mike Vu and he was like, Hey, I'm having uh, lunch with Troy Sumitomo from five axis. You know, you want to come along? Mm-hmm. And I was mm-hmm. like, no, nah, it's okay. You know, just tell him I said hi and you know, well, whatever. And he goes, no, you should really come along. So, I tagged, you know, I went and tagged along and went to lunch with them. And right in between the two supposed interviews at Disney, Troy hired me on the spot for mm-hmm. to work at Five Axis. And that was my parlay into wow. the concept car world. And so, you know, Troy sits there and he goes, yeah, you know, I had met Troy again through my friend Ben O and the Trifecta shows. So what happened was Troy met me let's say when I was still at Competition Soundworks and he had some jobs for Scion that he couldn't um, take the load on because he was too busy. And he goes, hey, Chris, I know you could do this stuff. Are you interested? But it was exterior body work. And I was like, I'd love to, Troy, but I would destroy our shop trying to do all this body work because we're not set up to do that much painting and priming and all that <laughs> stuff. And I go, hey, you should talk to Mike Vu because Mike had just left and Gary had just started, but he had a brand new paint booth. And I was like, you should talk to Mike. So Mike ended up doing the Scion jobs for Troy and they became pretty close friends. So come around full circle, you know, Mike's friends with Troy, you know, I'm on the outs, but I, I get this lunch opportunity with Troy and Troy's like, what have you been up to? And I'm like, looking for a job. And I go, I might work at Disney if they hire me. And he goes, no, come work for me. And then he goes, let me talk to my manager. And he goes, ah, never mind. I'm the boss. I'll hire you on the spot. I go, I was like, I was in shock. And I was like, when do I start? And he's just like, next Monday. Yeah. And, uh, he, I brought my toolbox right over on a Thursday and walked in on Monday and started working there. So just so to you were some, me- So you were mentally prepared to fix the people mover and the Astro Orbiter. And then all of a sudden you get wound back into car. <laughs> Absolutely. And when, when I turned down the job with a Disney recruiter, he goes, we'll pay you more. And I said, Honestly, I have a vested interest in the automotive world and I want to stay in that world and I'm going to take this chance. And he goes, well, if you change your mind, call us back. And so, yeah, I switched and just went straight to five axis. And so for maybe the people that don't know the history of five axis is during the towards the end of the end of my years at Alpine and maybe after we would go to CES and you'd walk into a certain booth. And there would just be this crazy pioneer show car. Mm-hmm. And you would be like, what is this? I was like, you know, before that, it was always five, or sorry, it was JL Audio, Rockford Fosgate, and Alpine in that mm-hmm. middle heyday of just really killer cars. And, you know, yes, uh, yes, and, no. And fish, yes. and fish kind of in I the have, field yeah, with whoever he was with. He's a fish from my <laughs> very early days because we were both Phoenix Gold dealers and 
Fishman or you know, young twenty-one, twenty-year-old me meeting Fishman was a shock to the system, like you wouldn't believe. But yeah, yeah, Fish doing his, you know, his stuff. But at the shows, you know, manufacturing-wise, I guess street wires and what whatever he was building the car Metra, yep, for sure. Metra, so those were yeah. you know at least in the industry. But then here comes these cars that I'm like. How did they build this? There was motorization, just the body kit, the cleanliness, the fit and finish. And I'm like, Pioneer doesn't have, you know, a facility. Mm -hmm. Huh. What's this five axis? So I remember sitting there looking at it for quite a while at one of the shows going, that that's, that was the takeaway from me as a TC that they had built for Scion and for Pioneer. And I was just blown away. But then I find out, you know, through Ben and Cardio Magazine that it was this five-axis place. So I got to take a tour of five-axis once. Ben goes, hey, I'm going to five-axis. You want to tag along? And I was like, sure. So I tagged along. Well, as to find out, the concept car world is very secretive. You don't just bring random guests unannounced to the thing. So I show up and Troy just kind of looks at me and goes... And he's like mad. And I was like, oh, no, what did I do? Right. So we're walking around. He's giving us a tour of the shop. And he's like, what was your name again? You know, as we're leaving. And I go, Cristiato. He used to work at Alpine, you know, built some show cars there. And he goes, oh, I know who you are. So then he wasn't as mad that I tagged along in that first trip. Right. And so come around <laughs> to probably another year, year later, having lunch with him. And he hires me on the spot. And so. Yeah, that was my transition into the concept car world. So that was that was so the great experience of working at competition, learning from Brian and, you know, the JL guys and things like that. Come come to a place like Five Axis and learning what the concept car world is was pretty pretty amazing. I, I gotta I gotta butt in real quick with my one, oh, my yes, one favorite, I know this how I met Troy story. We we get done we get done with the Sinister Six and it's on the pedestal in the booth during CES and this is like my first humongous build obviously the highest level thing and it's kind of late in the day and the booth is kind of thinned out a little bit and I come I come around the corner on the car and there's this guy crouch crouched down and a car the car's on like a ten inch high pedestal and he's like one eye looking down the side like looking at the body to see how straight it is. And I just jokingly like made some comment about like, that's eh, not too bad for some car audio guys. And he stands up and it's Troy and that's, and he introduces himself. And that's the, the first time I met Troy. And it was cause I'm he was, he was checking RLS. out to see how we did on the body work. Oh. Imprint. So, oh, it was the Sinister no, Six. Not the RLS, it was oh, the Sinister was, Six, uh, but yep. yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Troy got involved through Ben yeah. judging these trifecta shows. And that's where, you know, so me, Mike Vu, Gary, Troy, and some other people got, you know, kind of got to know each other with some of these shows. And so where does a, uh, the Scion XB DJ booth build fall? So that, so that was before. Is that before my, or after? Before? So there was an orange one that was before uh -huh. my time. So it was already built okay. and done. So there was the crew of people like there's okay. this, you know, whole crew design and builders that work in that world that um, build all sorts of stuff with some of the other companies that build those kind of things. And five axis mm -hmm. was one of them. Mm -hmm. So 
Yeah, that's the one that was on rides, right? So the rides episode the, was really funny to me because they the one the play, cut off? try to make, you know, re-edit, like, I don't know about this movie movie or TV magic type stuff that I don't know if you guys have experienced, but I watch it and I'm like, well, that car was done two months before, you know, it was a SEMA car and then Alpine car is a CES car. I'm like, they're <laughs> a month and a half apart, but they're trying to make it like they're, you know, going there yeah, yeah battle against each other so in battle I, against each other yeah, yeah that was before so it made i was for watching good TV, those though. shows thinking it would be neat to work at five axis right so mm-hmm. i hadn't worked there yet so watching that stuff on tv the right. rides show and you know overhaul and all those shows watching them and thinking what it would be like you know you guys had chip foos on right so mm-hmm. the funny thing is is five axis when i worked there was across the street yep. from chips and multiple guys like yep. You guys had the impression, Chip had the impression, right, at uh-huh. uh, yeah, yeah. The mobile. So a good friend of mine that I worked yeah. at Five Axis with, Andrew Pedersen, he Tech. worked on that with Charlie Hutton. So the interior body work and all that kind of stuff. So, wow. yeah, the Andrew was a big part of that build. And so I sent him a picture, and he's like, oh, that thing still is out there. So. It looked good for being whatever it's, it is, 21, 22 years old. I and you, saw it when it's it was insane how well two that thing held up. Winning the Riddler Award at Chip's shop, and you look at it, and it it just speaks of the foundational work that they do, and Charlie does, and what Chip does, and you know they they take their time doing it right, and the if you knew the guys that there's you know a couple other guys, Carl and Andy that worked on that car, these old school Swedish. Uh, masters that do like the chrome work if you knew how many times those window trims got copper plated it's like they use copper plating as primer so it goes for copper <laughs> yes so there's no it's shrinkage Bondo. because it's you know to that level yep. and so knowing and hearing you know it's really inspiring to see some of that i'm not a hot rod guy or you know that kind of custom car guy but just knowing and appreciating the work that went into it so we would go go to the deli and go hang out at chip shop on break and you know do those kind of things because everyone troy and chip were pretty tight and the guys in the shops were pretty tight so i'd be working in the shop sometimes and chip foos would walk by and like whoa it's chip and he's like hey gonna steal this chunk of you know urethane board all right (laughs) see you later so yeah it was pretty cool being in that you know that whole world like a lot of overhauling happened in that alleyway so when you watch it on tv you know it's right there it's next door in the little cul-de-sac that was next to where five axis was so that was a really crazy experience. Again, burning the candle at both ends, working at Five Axis because it's the same type of world, different deadlines and different shows. It's no longer CES. Well, it was CES also, but um, building that, bit working there was pretty amazing with all the crew there. So, like, you've seen the my first year there. You know, all of a sudden here's the Alpine guy working at Five Axis and doing the regular Toyota stuff, right? But then CES comes around and then you know, Ted, Carda- Ted Cardenas and whoever comes from Pioneer. Building the Pioneer like, car. Hey, we're building the, building the Pioneer <laughs> car for CES. And I was like, okay, who's going to do it? You are. Okay. So the first year, you know, that one of the things that was great <laughs> there was building a trunk or building an interior to match how awesome looking the exteriors of the five axis scions and you know lexuses were and whatnot so when those opportunities rose here i am again 
I need to um, really step up. Um, yeah, just being able to work in design. Now you're working with real designers, right? And so car designers are coming by, you know, Troy had uh, designers in-house. And so I was like, wow, now I'm really tested. So there's a lot of things building the cars at Alpine that, you know, again, in the bubble that I worked in at Alpine, you didn't get to share or there wasn't that much knowledge to be shared unless you really went and got it. But now I'm in this other uh, environment and just seeing how it, so many things were clicking. And so I designed a trunk for the ISF. It was a black Lexus ISF coupe that Brian had on his uh, mobile solutions cover, which I was really flattered when he wanted to do that. But that car, we took it, we took it to uh, CES. Yeah, and awesome. you know, it's, the car's already been out, but in the in the Pioneer booth, it looked really amazing, and it got a lot of uh, kudos and whatnot. But I'm sure just as much for the body as the audio. But there were just some cool opportunities, even at Five Axis, afterwards related to audio. So um, I took those opportunities. You know, then Instagram started coming around, and I could post things after they were done there. But it was a good experience. At some point in there, we've got to be to about the time where you got what I think is one of the uh, biggest honors of your career. Um, you, I believe, are the only one who has hosted a training yeah, at Brian's was, shop without that Brian was there. In, I would say, oh, oh, eight. I think it was during the. Um, time I was in Corona be right before five axis. Cause I would, once I was at five axis, I wouldn't have had time to get away. I don't okay, think right before but five axis. it was just an opportune time. <laughs> Where was he at? Yep. I thought he was in Canada, but I heard he was in Australia. So I think he was someplace pretty uh, far, yeah, right? Somewhere. So I get South the call Africa from Brian Australia saying or... he's double booked. And I was like, yep. what? And he's like, yeah, Brian's double booked. He, I think Todd Ramsey was also the intermediary to help try to get me over there. And he's like, yeah, he's double booked and he needs someone to fill in for Monday, Tuesday before he gets back. And I was like, what? <laughs> oh, okay. What are, what am I going to train on? And they're like, it was you know, for <laughs> table saw training and stuff. And I was like, okay, I could, I could do that. And so, yeah, I, we drove out there and, um, it was, you know, the classes were smaller there. There were, let's say six or seven people in that class and, you know, I'd done some trainings. That's one of the other things that I hear when I listen to your podcast is people like Brian and Mark Lowe and people that have done these global tours of trainings and just been all over the world. And when I was at Alpine, there were we had trainers. And for I, the last thing I wanted to do is build for CES and then not see my family and then be gone the rest of the year to not see my family. So anytime there was like a training position or, you know, national training or international training, I was like, Nope, that's not me. And that's not part of it. But you know, they've lived the experiences that they did. But <laughs> at the time I was like, that's just not me. And I can't, I can't do it. So I hear about it, but I'm not the polished trainer that Brian is. And so I stepped in, but the funny thing is I still am friends with one of the guys that was at the training that uh, we met. He was a guy that's a, a BMW mechanic. He's a Tesla mechanic now, but he uh, 
he's like, I'm not even in car audio. I do this stuff for fun, but I, <laughs> I have the means to come to the training. And I was like, that's awesome. So Who, how cool is a class that's not 20 plus people now? Like you don't get that. You don't get that experience anymore. Yeah. So, well, the last class I was at was with you before COVID, right, Gary? And that was that was a lot of fun, too. And meeting Tom. Good old Tom. <laughs> yep. So, and all the Mr. other Mr. Miller. Yeah. It's been fun uh, doing all those things. Yeah, so. So, so you're at Five Axis. Yes. And you build Pioneer car and you're getting to work on concept car stuff. Yeah, so that was, yeah, the huge step. So, one of the things, I don't know how much you followed. Maybe I did some articles online, but I, you know, I was really into trying to be efficient with your processes and duplicating things. So I might've done some plaster molding or some sort of molding class. And that came from Bill Hamsey literally sent me a kit one time with plaster, hemp, everything but water <laughs> as to how to make a plaster mold and from straight from JL. And I was, it, that was one of the catalysts, like just like Mark Fukuda to just tell me to get a welder or seeing his shop was a catalyst for a lot of that stuff and dust collection. Brian through, you know, with the uh, inverted router stuff was the catalyst. Um, that was a catalyst for me to learn how to do mold processes. Right. And plaster was a really quick, good way to do that. But so I, I walk into five axis with a couple of my plaster molds and I walk and I look around and five axis is everything with epoxy. So just for people <laughs> who don't know, like car audio per predominantly uses polyester resin, which is kind of stinky and whatnot, but it does the job and it's plenty strong for what you do. But I walk into this concept car building with some plaster molds and everything's epoxy. And I was like, I'm going to have to learn how to do everything I do from scratch again. And it was, you know, relatively intimidating. And of course, the first job they asked me to do is I'm like, what are we doing today? And they're like, who's this guy? And I'm the new guy. I just started today. And they're like, oh, we're going to color sand this car. And I was like, what? A color sanded a, you know, three stage candy orange paint job that <laughs> I have no idea how much clear is on there. And so I'm like, oh, what do we start with, you know? And they're like, I'm like, 1,500? They're like, no, we start with 1,000. 600. 800. Oh, okay. I was like, oh, my God. Because if people don't know, you burn through a candy job. It is very difficult to fix. And so that was my first job. Then the second job was custom trimming vacuum-formed acrylic lenses. And I said, hey, Troy, what's what kind of tolerance do you want on the gap? He goes, no gap. I go, What? No gap. So here's this fully painted car that needs these crazy, like vacuum forming has a lot of extra material on the side, right? And so it's hard to even get a guesstimate as where you're going to cut it. And he goes, yeah. I go, how much gap? You know, and he goes, zero gap. And I was like, oh, here we go. But <laughs> I figured out a way to do it. And eventually I was the guy to do all the acrylic part trimming, which is not a fun job, but I got pretty decent at it. I'm sure there's plenty better than me, but I was good enough for the task when I was there. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, those were the those were the days. I don't know. You know, it's definitely not car audio, but it kept coming back to the skills that I had gained from show car building and, you know, the electrical knowledge from, you know, all the things and 
every every winter it would you know go back towards building something for pioneer and there's plenty of electrical work that uh, concept cards need and motorization and things like that so that was definitely a plus me and uh jeff curtis uh, he was on he was on overhauling quite a bit i don't know if gary if you've ever met him yeah. but he was the other guy at five axis that had car audio background and you know having that yep. background very useful in that world so i was pretty happy to have that and then the time at five axis the uh, my second year in the fiber the composite guy left for another job and then we were left kind of trying to figure it out on our own and there was some you know multiple opinions on how we needed to make bodies of cars and whatnot and uh, I said hey Troy you need to make a decision and then that on that note he made me the shop supervisor so halfway in my time at five axis I became the shop supervisor which was an honor and fun to work with those guys but that uh that put us as an entire group having to take care of all the composites too and so diving into that learning how to do composites at a really high level um became a huge part of our huge part of my job and so like i said epoxy so full-size cars that come in as a clay, like a, you know how you see some model on a TV that's clay, clay, you know, the designers are sculpting on. Well, we would receive one of those and then we'd have to make the molds to make a fiberglass replica of the clay. And that took literally a month to make the mold. And then it'd take another two to three, maybe almost another month to make the body, maybe a little bit less. Wow. But it was a very big process and when i got there i had no idea how they did it on a larger scale so i'd watched the previous guy do it then you know i'm always the guy that maybe didn't know something but the way that i work is that in the middle you start asking questions well why do you do it that way why'd you do that you know and when i'm always bothered by an inefficiency or something from you know from the time I worked in my parents garage you know the dust collection things or the cutting with a jigsaw jigsaw instead of using patterns and routers cutting a hole in for a speaker with a jigsaw versus the perfect circle like all these things that solve issues always attracted me so here i am applying those types of logic and things looking at things that you know people been doing forever but then i ask why we do it that way that seems pretty inefficient or whatever and then just changing it and bringing my i don't know my weird way of combining all these other knowledges and things together and then you know making hopefully a pretty good um, improvement or impact on how the shop operates so Brought in dust collection, the five axes, brought in, you know, worked <laughs> with the guys to make some pretty neat um, improvements in the way the bodies were shaped. One of the things in the concept car world is if your fiberglass distorts, shrinks, whatever, you're going back to paint it because the customer's not going to be happy, right? And so the paint is a big part of it, but below the paint is a substructure, which is the composites. And so we got it to the point none of the vehicles that I know of that we made ever had to come back for a paint job for a repaint. There's always small flaws, scratches, things like that. But I'm talking wholesale 
entire door panels where the mixture mixture wasn't done right it wasn't post cured properly it was and i mean it's very bad and very noticeable when stuff like that happens and it costs the company a fortune and so i made it a prerogative to make sure you know that didn't happen to our company because it's very expensive and very time consuming so those are the things that (laughs) i used to spend a lot of time doing fit and finish and interiors and all that fun more kent double-sided tape gapping (laughs) craziness and so yeah at the time you know let's say we built uh an aston martin for pioneer and we also built a ct uh lexus ct hybrid car that had some pretty unique stuff in it so i stayed with the car audio side you know kept my blood in car audio until probably about 2014 and then that's when I got my job at Honda. So, well, and did you get the job at Honda while you were still at Five Axis, or had Five Axis kind of closed up at that nope, point? I, or, or? I got the job at Honda. So I worked at Five Axis for five years um, from the day having, you know, <laughs> lunch with Troy and Mike Vu <laughs> to, um, Let's see. So it was 2014. But uh, the way the funny thing is, is right before the Disney interview. Right. So what had happened, I guess I did skip over that, is that um, so Melanie Morimoto is the girl, one of the girls. So it's a family that worked with Alpine from before my time. So the Morimoto family, Warren Morimoto was the dad. He did the upholstery in that area for Honda, Toyota, Alpine, and things like that. So pretty much my first month at Alpine, we took a trip down to go visit them. And so it's a family business. So Warren and his two daughters ran the business. So Melanie was a girl that was sewing kind of in this nook in the back. And then Stacy was the sister that, you know, kind of dealt with the business side. And the father, Warren, did a lot of the work too really intimidating guy in a sense, you know, not a big guy, but, you know, tells you exactly what he thinks, get out of your shop, you know, blah, blah, blah kind (laughs) of guy. So I was like, whoa, but, you know, they did the work for Alpine and they did the upholstery for every show car that we did. M3, RSX, Excursion, the full seats and everything. So I knew them for quite a while. And so when Melanie heard that uh, Competition Soundworks went out of business, she knew, but I had just started the small business in the vertical doors. And so at vertical doors, I asked her to wrap a headliner for me. So she dropped it off at the shop and she goes, Hey, how's it going? I go, what's going on with you? And she goes, Oh, I'm starting at Honda. And I said, Oh, that's great. You know, good for you. And she goes, how is it? She goes, I thought I wouldn't like it, but I love it. (laughs) And I said, that's awesome. I go, Hey, if you ever need somebody to help you you know put a word in for me she goes oh they would love you but i thought you know you're doing this new shop i didn't want to bug bug you and i said no i said if you can get me out of this world you know maybe it would be great to do something like at honda so they i guess she got me an interview that was in october of 08 interviewed Things went well. They're, you know, asking me questions. So I'm showing them pictures of the Alpine show cars and they're looking at it and they're like, how'd you build yeah, yeah, this? Yeah, yeah, and I yeah. said, 
by hand. I mean, who did your data? Like the concept car world is very <laughs> 3D computer drawing. And I said, no, that's made with chipboard and grill cloth and, you know, wet, you know, wet layup and everything. And it blew their minds. So they were pretty impressed. And so I feel like they were ready, you know, to give me a second interview and maybe get me in. And then the economy crashed, right? So when the the recession happened, Honda had a hiring freeze. And so my second interview at Honda got canceled. And so that's when I was kind of pretty bummed out. But then that Disney job opportunity came up, but then I ended up working at Five Axis. So I worked for five years with Five Axis and it was so much fun. Great working with Troy, all these cool projects. But, you know, I was approaching 40 and those hours working in a pretty cold and hot warehouse really started to take a toll on my body. And I was just like, I don't see myself being able to do this, you know, another five years or whatever. And so I started uh, checking out, putting the feelers in with my friend Melanie and said, you know, is there a spot open now? It's been five years. I have all this other experience. And so I got an interview the second time. And one of the guys that was in charge of the shop remembered me from the first interview and he was looking for help. And so he kind of made the wheels at Honda are quite big to get turning, but he had, you know, start getting things in motion to get somebody in. It's very hard to get in. But uh, he put in the good word for me, and I re-interviewed, and then I got a job in the beginning of 2014. So, yeah, we're coming up on nine years now, a little over nine Wow, years. I can't believe it's been nine I years. I know, right? So, you know, I've spoken to Gary many, many times through those years, and so the funny thing about Gary is that he has two friends, if not more, at Honda, but the... <laughs> We are, uh, Robert Curiel is his other friend that I work with, and he's a peer of mine. So we're both uh, leads, group, uh, not group leads, pro- like leads in the department. So he's a lead, project lead in the exterior group, and I'm project lead in the interior group. So it's kind of funny. Gary has two buddies that he can get uh, parts <laughs> from. <laughs> yeah. Hey, my wife sold the element finally, so we're uh, we're Honda-less at the moment. But uh, yeah, it's been, and then from there, it's just been a whole nother learning curve at Honda, which has been great, so. And yet Gary's still a degenerate, still in car audio, turning and burning. (laughs) Still just knocking out those uh, deck and twos. Hearing what you guys have both cultivated with your, you know, consumer (laughs) bases and, you know, whatnot is... Some of me, you know, reminisces. Could I do that myself? Probably not. I don't have that ability or didn't find a partner that was, you know, similar to what Matt's situation is there. If I had someone like that, who knows, could have stayed in it for a while. Um, you know, I think about living in a different area and working for somebody like Scott Whitehead and having the opportunity, would I still be in it? You know, things like that. And so some of it's geographic opportunities. And some of it's just, you know, Southern California market's definitely different than some other markets, right, Gary? So it's... Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a strange it's, it's, place it's, out it here. It is its own thing. Like, I hear about, Matt, you talk about the excitement that some of your customers have listening to it. And I've had mm-hmm. such the opposite experience of someone yeah, who spent crazy. a lot of money, knows nothing about audio, 
and you know you make us something pretty nice and they're just like you know, and it's like, <laughs> wow. And so, you know, wrong customer base and wrong whatever it is. But it's just one of those things that I just never got, never got the right. The reactions are the greatest. And that's why when I was a mechanic for yeah. a little bit at Lexus, I was just like, this job is awful. <laughs> <laughs> it's a job is what it was for yeah, me. Yeah. You know, yeah. I just didn't get the reward or the payoff for, for all the hard work and when I have a client sit in a car, you know, I always got to ask them, Hey, do you want to see it first? Or do you want to listen to it first? Because they're both their own reaction, right? Cause yeah. you're looking at art and then you're listening to an experience. And, uh, you know, a lot of times I'll say, well, let's listen to it first because then you'll realize <laughs> how cool it is when you see it and realize that none of that made any noise. Right. And mm-hmm. it looks the way that it does, but yeah. nothing made noise. That's pretty right? awesome. The the payoff is is crucial for me because it makes all the hard work worth it right. and all the extra attention to detail that you try and achieve worth it. So Chris, what was your favorite car audio project? Like start to finish, what are you the most proud of? I was gonna ask the same question. <laughs> so that would have to be the M three. That was such a unique opportunity. That's when that was a 100% 50-50 build. Every choice was run by each other. You know, Steve had just, eh, I want to know if he just had come down, but he was there full time, right? Working with, and it was yep. a just a 50-50 build. The respect was there, both sides to every decision was made, you know, with each other, how we chose, how the system was built and how it was regarded in the industry at the time was pretty flattering and impressive for the effort. You know, it comes along with some crazy expensive equipment that uh, Alpine had put out. You know, one of the things I also flash back to is like, oh, the budgets you must have. The M3 budget was $35,000, including landed right. cost of the product, which was, you know, quite a bit of that budget. And wow. then doesn't, and doesn't cover the Rockford paying, bill at the yeah, machine shop. Correct. And <laughs> Melanie and her family's um, bill for the upholstery. So that took out almost half of it. You know, not the man hours, but you're thinking of all the other things that you have to do within that budget. And it's, you know, we. We didn't have to because our time's covered, right? But yeah, it's small budget things that you don't get to send out and do some crazy machining and all this other stuff. Though I didn't know what those options even were, you know, everything's built in. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't available to you it, at it that point. It just wasn't yeah. there. And I don't know how, if it got any better or bigger, but, you know, we built that notoriety like that. You know what? One of my... um memories is at a hot import nights we had you know we'd built the m3 then we built the rsx and i was so proud of the m3 just for the build you know every aspect of that thing you could take apart and be proud of and you step back and there were you couldn't see the rsx at hot import nights because it was completely surrounded by people and the m3 is just kind of off on its own and i was like (laughs) no look at that car that car is the you know the really nice car but that's when I realized the power of, you know, catering to that world and where things were going and, you know, what's getting the eyeballs and the attention. And, um, you know, 
step away from it as the uh, judge of what's cool and build towards what the market is, uh, what you think, you know, our guesstimation of what the market would do, you know. They made Hot Wheels of the RSX and the Civic, you know. <laughs> I mean, again, yeah. you know, I don't know how much is, you know, if we didn't build anything cool, you know, Alpine can't make Hot Wheels make a Civic, you know, airbrush Civic Hot Wheel or whatever it was. But that's that synergy that we created by going that route that really paid off. But yeah. The now, would you say it, it would be that car because you had adequate time? that you felt like to put into it to where you could achieve to how you wanted to achieve it versus for feeling sure. like you have to at least give up some time on other projects because you just don't have it <laughs> because yeah it's physically not possible but yeah, yeah. The, that where i told you that the initial build was supposed to be the four month build and then something happened where we were able to get months, the extra yeah. it was just like perfect 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 yeah and so that you know things things align for that usually it's the other way around when you're trying to build something and they're like hey that amplifier that we we're gonna get to you before christmas is now gonna come on new year's day and you're like no <laughs> and that yeah. year ces yeah. is on january 3rd and you have to transport <laughs> and you have to get it in before the building goes you know the walls go up and you're like no so the m3 definitely worked in our favor and the sound of it at the time you know was just phenomenal that upfront 10 inch sub just and you know having good woofers we didn't use uh, alpine speakers at the time they eventually the brands that we used became the providers of alpine speakers from what i understand but it's uh you know one of the stories i don't know if you guys, what you guys know or think about the Type R subs, but before that, that excursion was the first one. But I remember being in a little training room above the installation bay, and we were having a marketing meeting. And you know, it was our suggestion to use Type R and Type S type speakers. And you know, I was like, oh, Honda's just going to sue us, right? Because you can't say Type R, but yeah. I, you know, just like we couldn't call F1 uh, really F1, yeah, okay. we had to call it Alpine yeah. F number one status, right? And so that Type R, I still remember being in that stuffy little room upstairs coming up with Type R and then seeing that it still, you know, exists to this day, knowing yeah, still, exactly still where it was born. And oh, uh, wow. yeah, so that's pretty impressive. You know, we had a speaker engineer, Jason Kemmerer at the time. He's no longer with Alpine, yeah. but he was a, he was very instrumental to the development of Type R speakers and yeah. carries on. And it really, today. it did change the trajectory. That really we changed. In. Yeah. Yeah. It really changed Alpine. I mean, to this day, those woofers are, there's so much value in those woofers. It's, it's silly. Yeah. One of the really other silly. thoughts that I had based on, you know, going to Gary's shop. So Gary and I are neighbors. We live in the same city probably two miles apart from each other, but we don't really run into <laughs> yeah. each other. I'm pretty much never <laughs> home, but I get to go run over to Gary's shop when, you know, I have some time and it's always awesome and listening to what Gary's built. But, um, you know, I always joke, are there really still stereo confident? You know, I ask the shows, you know, cause after <laughs> it went away and I was like, I always joke with uh, my other buddy, Calvin Thomas. I'm like, you still have Iaska shows? And so he's just <laughs> like, yeah, you know, and I was like, wow. And so um, it's kind of funny how far away I am from that, you know, world and 
how instrumental in my career of going down this road that I ask a rule book was right. Like mm-hmm. just, yeah. man, there's so many little catalysts along the way, but you know, taking time like this to reflect back on it and thinking of <laughs> what they were, right? Like, yeah. you know, the I didn't get to listen to the podcast in the beginning, but when you had Mark Fakuda's on, I said, I got to listen. I mean, that guy's my <laughs> hero. And I was kind of waiting for it. Yeah. But then, you know, the tapestry that you guys are weaving with all the different people and how people blend in together, you know. Um, it's really cool seeing people's stories overlap and, yeah. Hearing what somebody else was doing when somebody else was doing something, and then somebody else is looking at this person's car, and that person is actually looking at their car, and it's just like yeah. there's so much synergy going on, and you know this this podcast really fills in those holes of how everything happened. Yeah, the that it really does, and that's I think it's riveting. So yeah, it's <laughs> for us right in that world, and whoever's yeah. interested in how certain things played out. You know, I'm looking forward to the ones you guys got coming out. In the near future, too. I'm all listened out. I've listened to Tom's <laughs> twice, Mark's twice, you know, um, Mark Lowe's twice. It's just, it's awesome. So, other than anything Fukuda ever built, <laughs> what did you ever see in your career from a fabrication standpoint? And you were just like, that's incredible. I think the year at the time, let's say, compared to what. Uh, we, you know, I was capable of, I think Brian's Xterra was phenomenal. And so, you know, Fukuda's stuff and all the pre, you know, the Arista, I never got to see that stuff in person. I don't think I even seen the Blastro van in person. There was the moment of awe. There's a, a light blue Mercedes that Mark, Mark Fukuda built that was really inspiring, really low key, but just Oh, it's so awesome. But as far as just blowing you out of the water with the sheer scope of what they did, mm-hmm. I, the Xterra really brings back a lot of like, wow, you know, kudos to them. And I don't know if I think it was a year we were competing or whatever it was, but, you know, we had built what we had built. But when you see what they had built, um, that that was pretty awe-inspiring at the time, too. There's things, you know, later on that's maybe less car audio related, being really impressed by the things that Five Axis built and then being there mm-hmm. to work on them and service them and then help build even crazier things was really interesting. But yeah, car audio related, I think the Xterra really stood out. There were some things, you know, I guess Brian and Scott were there for, at Innovative, but I never really got to see them in person that I wish I would have. I'm just thinking back to the days, you know, that go back to the stuff that Bill Hamsey and Gary Martin built, you know, for Manville, mm-hmm. with Manville at JL Audio that were just super, super impressive. Uh, Manville talked about his minis and there was a Subaru they did for him and just, you know, just picking up on small things, but they were more subtle, maybe more my taste that I was drawn to and really appreciated. But, you know, when you look at was, was the Subaru, the one where they used the rails and the folding floor in the back and it accordioned up. I think so. I I don't have such a, you know, you're just there and you're just blown away by the creativity and the build quality. And again, when those people that blew me away were able to share their knowledge with me not as a competitor as a you know a dealer or whatever you want to be as a friend it really it meant a lot to me 
And so those were really impressive and just helped build so many friendships and build knowledge. I think you had said you're not much of a car guy, but what, what, what's your dream car? I know what you drive every day. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of funny to be in this world working for a manufacturer and, you know, still not being a super, super car guy, like love cars, appreciate cars. Like if I won the lotto to have any car yeah, what, that I what would want, be in the garage or would, would you be, build something or would you buy something? I'd just buy something. Uh, maybe that's not the greatest answer, but probably, uh, <laughs> what is it? The, what would it be? A Cayman? Yeah. Porsche Cayman? The nicest one you could buy. Like something, you know, it's yeah. not the 911. doesn't need to be the turbo, mm-hmm. but like a Cayman GTS or something like that. It's probably not even yeah. saying it right. They got some different models now, but. Something like that. Yeah. Small, simple, clean. Have you ever done much with older cars? Everything I, I envision oh. you working on has been newer. and Yeah, like I see people that take that on as a challenge. Um, there was one year that uh, fi- that Pioneer bought 5-axis, a bunch of Camaros to do different stages. And I got to work on the uh, Aston Martin, which was pretty much brand new. So I was like, hey, guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and they're cursing up these cars you know nothing fits nothing lines up and it's just such a you know such cars are the worst and so (laughs) yeah i really appreciate you know when we were at five axis working on clean cars that don't even have any crud underneath other than those specialty (laughs) projects and working on brand new stuff which i still get to do to this day so yeah i don't miss you know because one of the things is like i talk about my consumer experiences is that unless you have someone that really trusts you if you're you know somewhere in that mid-level you know i wasn't the salesperson people weren't coming to me directly to seek me out for working on their car with a certain level of you know pre-sold expectations everything that's a problem became your fault and i just never wanted to be in that boat there was no trust with the customers that I dealt with that, you know, that was already there or whatever. And, you know, there's always that, well, you only spent, you know, these are billionaires that spend $15,000 and however their pre-expectation was, is that you did well over $15,000 worth of work and they're still like not happy. They're disappointed. And I'm like, I, I just don't understand that. So I kept wanting to get away from that and that, weird expectation and i've dealt i dealt with that enough times that i just said no and so that kind of goes along with restoration if you know if i was able to do a business where it was time and materials like the smart people do and whatever and you have this (laughs) client base that is willing to do that that would maybe change my attitude towards some of it and see it but um yeah i've carved out a niche in my world of what I do and um, pretty happy, pretty happy with the challenges I deal with every day. They're very varied and very interesting <laughs> and a lot of fun. Now, the big question is if you got the job at Disney to, <laughs> to work on the people mover when it breaks down, okay, do you think you would have graduated to be an Imagineer Oof. and start building props? <laughs> I would have 
done everything possible to go down that route, right? And so I have no idea whether that career would have gone down that path. I would have probably pushed to go that way, but I have no idea how they From a fabricator standpoint, I find just walking around Disney queues fascinating, right? Seeing how they build stuff. Because again, you walk through Galaxy's Edge and you see the props everywhere, like the suitcases, like those, it's not like they went to Target and just (laughs) manufactured and changed a suitcase they bought. Like it's a one-off suitcase and that's just one of a billion things (laughs) around, right? That's just so much appreciation that most people don't physically appreciate when they're at a place like that, right? From a fabricator standpoint, seeing all that stuff, you're just like, this is sick because all of this is fabricated. Every nook and cranny and every detail is, yeah, fabricated. You know, that's the world that I work in. Every The things that we make in large part doesn't exist before we make it. And right, right. It's not, you know, it's a huge team of people that do these type of things. But yeah, Disney and the that world does the same type of thing. And it's really incredible for, you know, to see it and respect it. I think I would give a I think I would give a year of my life for free to Disney to work alongside of the best of the best and just shadow like the big projects at Disney. I think that would be so sick. That would be awesome. So if anyone's listening that is (laughs) on the inside of Disney, yes, yeah, talented intern, or or the random dude who got that job in what year? Uh, working in Tomorrowland. <laughs> if you're a listener, we want to hear how it worked out for you. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Next time I go to Disneyland, I'm just going to be looking for that dude that's out there, like <laughs> fixing something. I'd be like, I have a friend that actually you only did knew recently started about a year ago working at Disneyland doing maintenance there. And so I get some inside scoop as to how things work there, but it's, you know, it's uh, not the same. It's uh, maybe what I thought. <laughs> yeah. I was almost a lifeguard there. <laughs> now that that went south real quick for the people yes, that heard did. that story. <laughs> wow. So at Honda, how much of that can you talk about? Like are you getting a vision of something to make and then you're making it to put it into physical form? Sure. Like let me just say, I guess there's always a disclaimer of something like this. I'm a very happy employee of Honda, but I don't speak for Honda or any of our companies. So I work in the R&D division. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, R&D can encompass so many things. But in our LA division, we, you know, work on cars that are going to come out, cars that are Mm -hmm, thought mm -hmm. up as concepts, but don't make it through and plenty of other random uh, ideas and projects. And as a fabrication group, we support uh, a lot of them. And so, you know, it's a fabrication uh, heavy uh, group. And so there's a lot of CNC machining, there's 3D printing, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of CAD data and uh, that support it. But the designs come from designers. There's designers, engineers, Mm -hmm. and all Mm -hmm. these things. And depending on which group requests something, you know, our group, creates the physical um, versions. Mm -hmm. And so the way that I explained some of it, I I remember I was telling my dad that something about wood and he goes, wood. 
you work you work on cars why do you need wood and i said dad we make fake <laughs> stuff it's not really so you know there's like a wood box underneath some of the stuff but the way that i put it is we have a certain level of model that will be coming out you know before the production version that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if you got blindfolded sat in it opened your eyes and started touching things you wouldn't know that it wasn't the real production car. It's done to that level of fit finish, you know, this put your hands on the steering wheel mm-hmm, mm-hmm, until you start mm-hmm. touching buttons and turning them and breaking them. You won't know that it's not real, <laughs> but it's that real. Right. Yeah. You might That's notice cool. that the windshield's not really, you know, glass or something like that, but the interior fit and finish of the highest level models that we create are, yeah, really production like. And then we do everything in between. That is a lot of uh, different versions. So Some of them are like cardboard stick figures. No, <laughs> Have we gone that low? Like, yeah, there, you know, no. we've got some crazy requests. But yeah, it's a, it's a pretty wide range. We have, remember that uh, bandsaw that you had, Gary, at the display thing? Oh, so at the I display had, company? So yeah. I got to visit Gary when he worked at the display company after Alpine. And he had this bandsaw that who knows it has a 14 inch throat or something vertically which is the biggest yeah. so i said what is that gary and i still have a picture of gary standing next the to the sliding bandsaw. table yeah. like yeah. huge so, sliding table on it and like a a foot break with like compound lever action yeah, to try to, to slow it down. it down it's pretty crazy i walked into honda yeah. my first day we have that bandsaw oh that's awesome <laughs> and i was i think it was 20 24 inch resaw i think i think it's like it's like two feet humongous and so that's one of the best things of my job now is that the fabrication facility is just top notch and large and i get to work with melanie and a really good group of people and uh just yeah Every day walk into this, you know, I'm a fab guy. I walk into this amazing facility every day with a big smile on my face with whatever challenge that we got to do. Sometimes it's a little crazy, but it's just amazing. And so it, do you wear a white lab coat every day. For some reason, <laughs> I picture everybody in there in a white yeah, lab coat. So Honda's famous for the production facilities, white, white coat, white pants, green hats, things like that. And our fab facility, they provide them, but it's not mandatory anymore. So um, we have them. And if you don't want to get dirty, a lot of people still wear them every day. I've been transitioning to doing more uh, CAD work, which, you know, I don't know if it applies to this podcast, but, you know, I've been a very manual fabricator from the get-go and i was you know a little worried for my future as to getting older and you know how do you prove that you're even halfway decent at anything fabrication related and so i've taken the opportunity to learn from a couple people um one is a x5 axis alumni that so there's a on a small side note, we call it the five from five. So at Honda, we have five people that used to work with Troy at five axis and, um, Jackie Porche, he's a uh, fabricator. And then Hemming Chan, he's a designer and Chris Lee is another designer. And then, uh, Tim Mraz, which works with me in fabrication. So five of us from five axis graduated and moved to Honda. <laughs> so it's kind of pretty crazy. And oh so, wow! Yeah. 
So Jackie has been is this amazing fabricator, but he's switched over to the data world. And so in the automotive world, we use a program called Katia. It's like Mark Fukuda said, McMaster is like Granger on steroids. Katia is mm. SolidWorks on steroids. They're actually owned by the same company, but it's this really crazy program that does, you know, just three everything that a vehicle needs to um, be produced down to the double side tape and the felt and the PC board and switch everything in a modern car by pretty much every company that, you know, modern is designed and built in this Katia program. I don't know the, if there's the licensing fee for that is slightly more than the 350 a year or whatever fusion 360 yes. gets. So. <laughs> slightly. Just a just a little bit more. Slightly more, but that is, you know, that's the automotive standard, I believe. And you know, other other um companies, other like I'm sure like a Boeing or somebody like that uses this program. But the learning curve is incredibly steep. And so when COVID hit Ta-da! Lots of, uh, what is it called, um, Teams meetings or online meetings, you know, virtual meetings, whether it's like Zoom-type meetings. And now that was the chance for me to learn some CAD drawing, you know, without looking over someone's shoulder. Because before the commonplace uh, availability of video screen sharing, it was all these, my, all my data reviews were either in a special room or over someone's shoulder. And, you know, it's uncomfortable looking at uh, over someone's shoulder as they're drawing data, but you could follow and shadow people doing stuff uh, with the popularity of all the Teams meetings and the video meetings. And so I took it upon myself to learn. That's going on three years, but I feel less grandpa-ish now, so I can, you know, <laughs> I can actually draw something and assemble something. And it's pretty interesting that the fundamentals of so many things, like in fabrication, like when we built the early Alpine cars, well, I guess my, the whole way through is that we used MDF, cut ribs, made some sort of skeleton and stretched grill cloth mm -hmm. over it and then fiberglassed over that. And the fundamental building blocks of surface data is something very similar to that. And so, right, but yeah. now you're just drawing the lines <laughs> with a click rather than run into the jigsaw with a chipboard pattern. <laughs> and, you know, you don't have to copy it twice and glue it and, you know, stretch the grill cloth. But having all that experience doing that stuff has definitely been an advantage to doing things like uh, 3D modeling and even the basics of 2D, you know. There's 3D modeling for like surfacing, but there's also really basic 2D or, you know, geometric stuff. But having that experience and what to look for and how to build something is definitely sure. been an advantage. So I plan to uh, keep building on that. But I can't get away too far from the hands-on fabrication, too, because that's with the shop that we have. It's just so awesome. Yeah, it's also cool for the younger guys that are coming up that deal pretty much 100% on the data side and printing or machining, you know, complete parts. It's got to be amazing to when you can still walk over to the router table and just make something out of nothing faster than they can draw it and print it. Like they, they haven't even loaded a reel of uh, filament yes. on a printer or filled up the resin bay and 
just uh, you already have it made <laughs> yeah that's it goes both ways right like matt tells the story of jeremy making something for yep. him at the yep. at the what was it at the tech it was our console class i see it was yeah. a class right but it's the yeah. same type of thing but it goes both ways right and being able to judge what process is the most advantageous at the moment is for sure the wider yeah. the wider your skill set and the wider your knowledge base just gives you that many more choices to pick the best route and i think that's i've been able to use that to my advantage at a place like honda and that comes help. with experience and yeah. failing a lot yes yeah, so knowing the all the ways law, to not do something kicking my yeah. butt and you know learning yeah. what not to do so many ways and so i you know there's been instances where you know i help someone do something but they think they want to go down a certain route and i say sorry but no we're not doing that and they get a little upset and i say they say why because i've tried that and it didn't work out and i'm yeah. just trying to save us and you some time but sometimes you know i'm not a um let everyone fail and everyone's got to le learn their own mistakes you could watch someone making the mistake for sure and know that you don't want to do that too right and so I think that's key into faster paced learning. Maybe certain things need to sting more and hurt more to really set in as not to do something. Mm -hmm. But I can see plenty of things without doing them myself that I know I want to avoid. Mm -hmm. So the master yeah. has failed at everything. The beginners never tried. Yeah. It's one of my favorite quotes. Yes. What's your other one, Matt? The, uh, the opportunity and, uh, accessibility availability creates opportunity yes i heard that one and i'll say that's just something i made up i didn't find that online but <laughs> that just rings true to like my career is like saying yes to go to an event has opened new doors because then you talk to people and they're like hey why don't you come out and do this or why don't you come out and do this and like if you just keep doing that yep. opportunities are going to continue to happen right yeah. and that's how every Ultimately, everyone's career moves. If you stay stagnant and you stay comfortable and you're like, no, I don't got to do that. I've done that before. Like you're missing potential opportunity. Absolutely. That can completely change your career, right? It did you for me. Yeah. Go work some, you, yeah, you can go work completely somewhere else. Like you said it at Honda, yeah. right? You could not, not go have lunch with Troy one day. <laughs> yeah. Right. Where would you be now? Yeah turning wrenches in Tomorrowland. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty crazy to think of the past they could have taken, right? But like you talk yeah. about, you know, certain things like in Jeremy's podcast with his, you know, certain choices and, you know, but being a standoffish guy that's very competitive, doesn't want to share. Cause you know, I've come across those people too. And it's like, where, what did that get you? You know, like I know some people, during the Alpine times or whatever said, you know, oh, you give away too much information or share too much information. But I have, you know, lifelong friends that I've had from those experiences. And I didn't, you know, one of the funny comments when that we had the build books at Alpine was, aren't you afraid that you're giving away too much information and, you know, someone's going to take that information from you? And I said, well, we're already working on the next idea the next thing and moving forward mm -hmm. and if someone can take this information and benefit from it and outdo me more power to you from that you know i actually mm -hmm. work with mm -hmm. that kid tim sure. tim and yeah he's gonna outdo me like he's been, i've known this kid since <laughs> he was 16 at that competition soundworks job and 
you know, he's just got this amazing potential, but I don't see it as a competition and I don't, you know, I really don't like it when people do. It's like, don't you want the best for people in general? I mean, you would hope that they don't overtake you somehow and then step on you. Yeah, I can understand maybe some fear of something like that, but sharing information, having the general group, you know, the whole group that you have right with at the expo and all these things like the sharing the information and um just bringing everybody's level up is definitely yeah, i don't see that's how what that, keeps you moving forward hurt, right? is you need and people so, to keep yeah. surprising you to reevaluate what you're doing and be like hey i need to step it up everyone's evolving and you know i'm stagnant i need to evolve and if if we didn't have competition we wouldn't have and anyone evolving in anything yeah. I think the other side of that too is when when we do go to like mobile solutions and we do one of those all-star builds and we're all we're we're just trying to outdo each other for fun because it's it's mm-hmm. fun to bust balls and we like to push and we like to empty the bag of tricks because if we if we show everything that we know if we push and are trying to learn and show what we're trying to accomplish something new something different and you instantly share that it just means that the next time you do that you have to push harder and if you Mm -hmm. don't empty that bag you have no reason to refill it and so that's how you i I feel like that's how you kind of continually progress yeah is by giving away what you do know and and no holding that makes you want to go learn new stuff Yeah. yeah And for me, I've said this in I've I've said this in previous podcasts. Like a lot of times I'll just challenge myself and when I'm talking to the client about their car, I'll just pitch out some crazy idea that I know is gonna be hard to to do, right? <laughs> so that way I'm almost married to it because now I'm setting an expectation with the client and that's then forcing me to do that or do some variation of that because there's an expectation. And if I didn't say that, I could always take the easy way out and the customer wouldn't know any different. But a lot of times I'll forcefully just throw out something that is going to push the envelope and make me marry to that idea. So I have to, I have no other route. I have to move in that direction. That's just what I've done for myself sometimes. Yeah, I heard that and I thought, wow, that's pretty ballsy. Like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah I don't, I, I try not to put myself out there. I'm pretty quiet about it. But yeah, I was like, wow, that's yeah. one way to definitely get you to do that. Yeah. And it forces you to figure stuff out. Cause I remember I did a Porsche GT3 carbon fiber enclosure where I resin infused the whole enclosure. And <laughs> yeah. I told the client, I said, listen, I'm going to, I'm not going to do like hand laid carbon. We're going to resin infuse it just like Porsche would do it. And it's going to be sick. And then I'm just like, fuck, now I got to present infuse this <laughs> carbon fiber and figure yeah, out how, how is that learning all the materials curve, I need. I got to dive. I got to dive that? into it. You and got, I got to your bag leaking. Yeah. The resin's yeah. not coming yeah. in right. Yeah. 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 But it forced me to one, do the process, fail at it. And like everything's leaking. I'm like, oh my God, I, I could have done it way better. And then you're plugging all the leaks and, and then, and then you see it working and you're like, all right, I it's figured it out. Cool. Right. And it then is. you learn a new skill set. It is so. really cool. Yeah. I think, you know, being in the confidential space for so long now, it's like I follow a lot of things and you see it and you're just like, 
yeah, I can't share that, you know, and it's like, but I live it, breathe it, enjoy it, you know, on so many aspects. And I see certain things. I was like, oh, that's, that's cool, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's like being in this world of uh, concept car stuff is, you know, it's great. But yeah, I think that's the part that I miss the most was being able to kind of share certain things and I'm just gathering. It's like you're in the NSA or the FBI or something (laughs) and you can't talk about what you do all day. Yeah. Sucks. Yep. You know, it's Honda, it's it's cars, but. You had a nice little run on Instagram sharing a bunch of tips and tricks for a while. That was, that was fun. I remember that because, you know, that's after five axis and five axis, as long as the car's already released is, you know, fine. But being in this space now, it's like the things and the processes and stuff Mm -hmm. that I get to Mm -hmm. play with. It's. It's so just amazing, but at the same time, you know, we're not NASA, you know, we don't get to do Mm -hmm. things that are, you know, at a certain level, but our projects are very time sensitive and, you know, everything's pretty much about time, less about budget and less about other things. But, uh, yeah, the processes that we get to evolve, you know, the machining aspect of it, you know, there's a lot of stuff on Instagram that show Mm-hmm. cutting edge machining mm-hmm. and cutting edge processes if you follow it but it's just blending it all together and being able to try different things to make something cool you know it's not always just a creative process there's a target of making something but you get to just reach back into your pocket and just come up with a good way sometimes just building a wood box <laughs> you know but we have such <laughs> amazing facility that stuff's really um, easy there was a uh, one project right after I got started was uh, Ludacris. He has a um, old Acura that got uh, crashed into, I guess. But Honda and Acura signed up to help uh, fix his car kind of for charity. And uh, I got to, oh, that's why, because Gary was too busy. We were like, 100%, we're going to have Gary do the job. And Gary goes, yeah, I'm too busy. And I was like, so they, they, it's like the guys just turn around and look at me and say, so what are we going to do about this? And I was like, are you, are you, oh man. So it was pretty funny. So I built a sub box at, in the Honda facility for, That's for awesome. that car that Gary didn't want to take on. Uh, I wanted to take it yeah, on. Yeah. It was fun. I don't, I don't like to say no to much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you really don't. <laughs> no, he, he takes on a lot. Anyways, uh, any other questions for me that I haven't? I've talked way too long. But when are you going to put a system in the Mazda? And who listening is going to give? Who who listening works for a manufacturer and is going to just make a box of good car audio show up? So Chris will put a system in his daily driver. <laughs> Man, I've I. I listen and I dream about it. Listen to the pod. It's kind of funny. Like, okay, so I'm listening to some, you know, great music or am I listening to a podcast? Then I'm thinking about putting a better system in my car. Then I listen to the podcast and then I'm just like, oh, do I need DSP? Do what would I use? And it's just like, I drive my wife's 2008 Subaru Tribeca with like 200,000 miles on it. Wow. Nothing in there. It barely runs. 
It you has, have a three-minute commute. What, I do. Chris, I have a how long does it take commute. you to get home on a Friday, yeah, Chris? Yeah, so I yeah, have a, you a almost a 40-mile commute each way, right? So yeah, I drive pretty yeah. fast. So let's say it's about 45 minutes to an hour. So there's a lot of commute time. But the reason why I haven't dedicated time to putting in the system is typically I sell the car within two years and so i you know by the time i get a new car am i gonna really put that much time into it and i have a how far into this car are you i'm at almost fifty thousand miles in this car so this one's this is the turbo that i've really enjoyed so it's a little mazda 3 all-wheel drive turbo second mazda 3 in a row fourth right? fourth <laughs> yeah. oh god yeah pretty funny all i, I like know is it's always a mazda 3 yeah it's been lately it's just that i love that you work for honda and you drive a mazda yeah i park a mazda 3 outside you know the design studios and you know honda's <laughs> one of the great companies where there's places where you know that would be just a total faux pas but honda's you know porsche drivers whatever enthusiasts is they fully support you know mm-hmm. there we had a internal show and tell kind of I don't know, like a get together type thing. And one of the higher ups said, yeah, Chris, why don't you show your car? And I go, are you trying to get me fired? And he was just like, no, show your car. <laughs> I'm like, you're serious. You're not just messing with me. And he goes, no. So there was, you know, there's Volkswagens, Toyota, Tundras, and, you know, people just show showing off their interests. And, you know, the atmosphere at Honda is just totally cool with that. And they appreciate things, you know, it's, we have amazing stuff, but at the same time, they're not like we're the only ones that have amazing stuff. So they're really open to that. And the culture at Honda is just it, really good. It also probably helps. It probably also helps to have benchmarks of other cars and, yeah, and absolutely. the people that are working at this OEM level oh, and yeah. designing cars can see and get exposed to things oh, close yeah, up. I've had designers and other people, hey, can we take a look at something in your car, you know, and they, you know, <laughs> there's it's benchmarking and looking at and, you know, seeing what we do well and, you know. Um, so do you ever have downtime at Honda? Because I have a, one of my old friends works for Ford doing the same thing uh-huh. and he has told me stories where they're like, yeah, sometimes they'll just say, yeah, scrap what you're doing. And then we just have all this time on our hands. So like the guy next to me will build like a Kylo Ren mask. And then the guy <laughs> across will build like a Zelda sword. And you're just- getting people fired from Ford right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so in my time at Honda, that has only happened twice or three times where something you know was moving forward and got paused or canceled and then you had some time from what i hear it used to happen you know more regularly but um the thing is our group is so diverse and can help a department or you know so are we have engineering in ohio and we have um you know designers in u.s japan you know so it's a pretty global Mm -hmm. company but based on our ability and skill set and the uniqueness of what we have in our Torrance location um, we get to help out quite a few different people you know so whenever there's downtime or perceived downtime someone puts in Mm -hmm. a request and then we're working on that so we've had some quite varied 
opportunities that we've been pretty successful at. So that's awesome. So yeah, our downtimes, literally, I can count on one hand where we had over a month of downtime. So the other thing too, that's got to be odd is that so where you work now is about a three minute drive from where Alpine was. Yes. They've, they've since moved back to Detroit, but it's yes. literally right down the street from where you worked yes. for so all I, those years. I cut by on the way home to the freeway. So um, where, yeah, where Honda is being back in what I call the, you know, the Japanese food Mecca down here in Torrance has been <laughs> great to come back to this area, you know, on a daily basis. But uh, Alpine, when I came back to Honda or came to Honda, Alpine was still there and I would pass by like literally, but when they decided to move to uh, Michigan, you know, they sold the building and then it was sad to see the day when the Alpine sign came down and whatnot. Some of our, some Uh, of my friends uh, have pictures, but uh, yeah. So then they painted the white building a little bit gray and it's different, but I used to know the inside of that building every step because I'd be one of the last persons to leave and set the alarm. So I knew that building yeah. quite well, but yeah, lots of lots of memories lots of that of place. Lots of lots of history happened yeah. there. How long it's were really you there? Crazy. Gary? Just two, a little over two uh, years. Three, three, years. three builds, so yeah. almost four years. Oh, yeah. was some time. Yeah, so you knew yeah. it well too. Yeah. Lots of memories. Yeah, it's you know it's been a long time since because if I left in, I left what twenty years ago, right? Oh three to twenty three. Wow. So like yeah. literally like. Last week would have been my 20 years from leaving Alpine, the wow. job I Do you own any with. old school, cool parts product from Alpine or anything? Do you have a collection of anything? I'm not much of a collector. The only thing that I have in my attic is some Japanese uh, steering wheel, Momo Alpine remote control <laughs> steering wheel that I have in there. And I looked at it, Gary, and I think it's a little too damaged, but that's, you know, uh, I've gone through things mm. and not much of a collector i've I'm, seen i think i may or may not be looking for an alpine momo yes, wheel i'll pull it down for a and project see coming up might be yes i'll bring it down and see if uh, i could get repaired Good old momo. to have you have you <laughs> have it um yeah not much of a collector i'm a tool fiend i literally so. had a momo steering wheel in my eclipse with the actual nos buttons that worked like it's <laughs> hooked up to nos on the car yep, like it was old, uh, so and my last question, yeah. are we going to see you next year at Expo? Yes, so that's where I put in the budget to go and visit the Expo next year. Like the first year, Brian called me and really wanted me out there, and I, it, it had the potential of happening, but the opposite of that uh, schedule being moved out or canceled, it got moved <laughs> to right on top of that date. And so I wanted to go the first year again because mark Fukuda's there and i haven't seen him in mm-hmm, mm-hmm. quite a while so and then this year it didn't work out either but i'm trying to make a big effort to go next year you you heard it here first <laughs> buy your tickets now <laughs> now the pressure's on yes for people that discount yeah. code yato <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny but yes i you know i know i'm missing out but it's gonna be even bigger and better next year right so it's gonna be that's what it sounds impressive. like <laughs> gary and all yeah you the, never know the mvp you might... yeah gary the mvp of the and you never know. Availability creates opportunity. There might be a Disney Imagineer walking right. around the premises <laughs> right. trying to figure out some new techniques. And then all of a sudden, That's right. he hears you your podcast and says, hey, 
how would you love to be a Disney Imagineer? So you're like, you know what? I've done the car thing long enough. Yeah. Availability creates opportunity and you don't know the reach of your podcast, right? Yep. You never know. (laughs) Well, this was a blast. Thanks. Thanks for your time. Well, time flies. Going to cut an hour out of this thing. No. I'm (laughs) not. Let it roll. The two before you were both, I think, about four hours. Wow. All right. So time is okay. You you know, let it roll. Because, you know, me as a listener, I'm like, longer the better. I think. uh, Yeah, it's it's all organic. (laughs) Yeah. Gary and I have had this conversation numerous times. He's like, why don't you just make it in three parts? I'm like, well, that's dumb. Because now you're just chopping an organic conversation for like part one, part two, part three, part right. four. And with most podcasts, they pause whenever you stop, yeah. right? You get out of the car, you go to work, and then you get back in the car and then just pick up right where yeah. you left off on yeah. the conversation. Yeah, <laughs> that's so. true. I'm kind of disappointed. I, You know what I stressed out about for the podcast was you guys talking about picking the songs. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> Do I have See? to remind you of what it was? That's Are you going to say bird on know, a wire? Are you going to say bird on a wire? No, I'm not. And so <laughs> I, I was like, man, if they asked me, what would I say? Right. And so I came upon two things. And I said, the reason why I'll pick these two songs is because Ooh, okay. of my time at Alpine. I can distinctly remember. Well, some people, you know, really thought, oh, you're not into that. Oh, I was very into it. I never competed in Iaska with my own name. The amount of studying that I did for you know audio audio pass um one of the things i didn't get to mention was the um auto sound and security tech briefs and seminars i attended one when i worked before i worked at alpine and manville was there and larry frederick you know rest in peace Mm -hmm. um was there and these just these heavy hitters and i was 19 years old and i saw these people and I was just a fly on the wall in the back corner trying to suck up a bunch of uh, information and to, you know, think years later that, you know, these people would, uh, you know, I wouldn't say be my peers, but people that, you know, knew who I was and that I, you know, had respect with across the industry was pretty uh, interesting. And so that was a big deal uh, for me attending that. And so how into the audio aspect I was kind of unbeknownst to a lot of people kind of drifted away from it because it feels more like food and taste, right? Like who's to argue what's better between, you know, a Ruth's Chris steak and an in and out hamburger. They're both satisfying at Mm -hmm. a certain different price point. Maybe you don't eat meat, Mm -hmm. you know? And so similar to the situation with the customers that were unhappy with, let's say a system for a certain, whatever, maybe not, sound or time or what budget whatever it was but i've run into situations where yeah you know chris is just an installer he doesn't know anything about sounds like that's the whole reason i got into this i'm not gary and i'm probably not you matt anymore either but i just realized that some of it was so flavor based that Mm -hmm, i mm -hmm. you know going to the fab side where there's more objectivity as to what's quality like maybe you don't like how the impression looks because that's not your type of car you cannot say that is not a work of art to the Mm -hmm. bone Mm -hmm. it's just not Mm -hmm. um it's not arguable but you know to say that you know a high-end system and a am 
mono radio are different. There's a bigger range, but there was too much range for me in the world. And I wasn't going to argue with some. How do you argue mm-hmm. with someone? Yeah. You know, I would tune a car, let's say those Pioneer cars at five axis. And then, you know, somebody that's a total non-audiophile would jump in and go, hey, it sounds a little flat. Or, yeah, because you listen to shrill whatever and your hearing's gone. But I'm not going <laughs> to say that, right? And so that was kind of where I just, you know, with my, my personality, I just said, yeah, you like Got what it. you like. Yeah. I like what I like. But, you know, I'm not, it's not my job to convince you otherwise. So anyways, getting back to my choice would be first one, chronologically, it's it's not in English, and I hope that's not a problem, but it's, <laughs> <laughs> so there's a guy called Michel Jonas. He's, I don't know if he's French-Canadian, but he sings in French. And the way that this experience came about was somebody was not happy with an Alpine processor. And he came to the shop, to the install bay, Gary, and pulled up in his BMW. And he played this track for me. And it was Michel Jonas. I'll send you a screenshot. But the the okay. track is called Le Temps Pass. I don't know if I'm saying that right because I don't speak French. But it's <laughs> like an 11-minute song. And it's just in a good system, like one of Matt's systems and one of your systems. Maybe you'll listen to it in the Camaro, Gary. <laughs> um, it is, to me, was incredible. I hope it stands the test of time. But, you know, during my whole time at Alpine and beyond, that was one of the discs that I would pop in. So the crazy thing is it wasn't on Spotify or Apple tunes. So I bought the disc a while back, let's say five years ago oh, wow. for a hundred dollars. Cause I found it on oh, eBay. Wow, my so goodness. it's a real collector's item. Somehow I transferred it to a, what is it? A note audio MP4. And I would try to play it through my phone. And then when your podcast came about, I was like, Hey, I want to see if that's available so I could talk about it. Apple, yeah, nice. Apple Music and Spotify now. So I'll send you a screenshot. Anyways, Perfect. when you look at the screen, it's already a giveaway because it says it's live. But when I listened to this track, I had no idea what I was listening to. And you listen to the track and the bass and everything, that ambience of the track is just amazing. And at the very end, there's clapping and you sense the feeling of the space on top of how strong the bass is and how good it sounds. And it just gives me goosebumps when I listen to it in a good system. And it's pretty impressive. But now that, you know, there's track information, you know, it's live and I'm telling you it's live. So it's not as much of a surprise at the <laughs> end. You have no idea it's live, or at least I had no idea it was live until the very end. And it's pretty impressive. And then the second track, am I supposed to, well, anyways, you get two, is uh, Rage Against the Machine, Take the Power Back. When we listened to that track in the M3, I can't remember the guy's name, but he goes, you got to listen to this and pulls me in. And that the way that track is recorded with the bass, the, you know, the sub that we put in the dashboard, and it's just right in your chest thump that, you know, just really shook me and those are the two times at alpine that i just absolutely remember vividly after you know bad memory and 20 plus years of time passed those are the two that i still distinctly remember so i'd say those would be the tracks are they you know the best tracks ever i've enjoyed a lot of music since then but 
those two moments <laughs> stood out at the time. So I thought that's what I would bring. That's awesome. What a great breakdown. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even thought, think that segment was going to happen with you, but what a great breakdown. <laughs> so, you know, the last thing <laughs> See? that I what wanted to bring surprise. up is love listening to all the podcasts. And Matt, you brought up the Tiny Desk concert. So, um, you know, I'm a oh, big yeah. NPR guy and I know about the Tiny Desk concert, but I never related to audio because, you know, I just watch a clip it that comes up on my computer, mm-hmm. maybe with the mm-hmm. headphones. And then you talk about the Leon Bridges track, right? And I was like, ooh, that sounds great. So so good. Right? So what happens with me and Murphy's Law? Sorry, there's a problem with this. We can't play it. So I Google it, try to play it, and it won't come up, (laughs) won't air out. I have to like go this total back-ass words way and finally get it to play. And I was like, man, Matt, you're you're on it. But that is really impressive and i'm like i can't believe these youtube recordings sound this good right so bro that if you listen to if you listen to his npr version and then his album version on itunes it's just you listen to the itunes and you're like why would they release this if he's (laughs) this good of a singer yeah like the impact and the recording of that you know the way those guys really know what they're doing at the npr tiny desk you can totally 100 most of those recordings on all of those sound better than most of the albums so then that got me thinking I listened to a couple and I was like, okay, there's some bands that were on there that didn't their recording sound better than their NPR recording. So I was like, huh. So then I Googled, you know, best ones or whatever. And so I came across one that I'll put up there is it's a Colombian band called Monsieur Perine. They spell it M-O-N-S-I. I can't spell, <laughs> but Monsieur Perine, and it's a Colombian band, and the musicality of their performance, all three songs, is phenomenal. Mm. My wife's Mexican. There's lots of Spanish in the house. I still don't understand what they're saying, but <laughs> the musicality of the, that performance, and you know, they say it straight up that you know it's one of the better bands that came through, is so impressive, and you know. You guys take a listen, see what you think. You know, you might not like it as much, but it was really <laughs> impressive. And I've listened to that track or that performance over and over and over again. Another another fun one that's you wouldn't think from a sound quality perspective would be good, but it's really fun, right? Is Tech Nine. Really? If you listen really? to that one, yeah, you go to the last track they play and there's just a lot going on. There's fast rapping and it's all just so like you can hear every syllable, like every part of it. And the band gets into it. Everyone starts getting hype. The crowd gets into it. And it's just, I would say one of the most fun ones to play for people. Cause again, like you can clearly hear him here, him here, and you can hear like the band's just in the perfect spots and it gets really fun, really fast. And, it's 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 just a lot of fun that's awesome yeah the bringing up the you know with the audio stuff and the visual representation to see that the yeah. you know that's what you talked right. about it's, and i was yeah, like it's oh, it's i never be. thought yeah. of that and i was like wow yeah. you really can and it's like, it's the whole it's a whole proof of concept yeah for the for the client to sit in the car and be like all right this this you know, the system is doing what it's supposed to do and i've never even knew that this existed yeah and you could see like so many visual things because you know i'd be listening to tracks and then you'd listen to something and you're like 
what is making that sound? And then you see it and you're like, yeah, oh, I've never yeah, seen yeah. that before. And you could visually uh, confirm that you're not crazy, that, you know, whatever got put down. Mm-hmm, and the, mm-hmm. now this, you know, this other, you know, whatever tambourine instrument or whatever is uh, playing. So, yeah, definitely don't have the highest, you know, musical education that some people have. But, you know, appreciating good sound and enjoying it you know again to a certain level you don't need to be a certain level chef to know what some good food is but you know at a certain point i think people get a little too esoteric and you know jump the shark but we i don't know what order the last few recordings will come out in mm. um but we did we did have someone on recently and we were having that conversation about um you know, some, some people listen to music to tell you what's wrong with it. And that, that is what's enjoyable to them. Yeah. It can be, you know, and some people can sit back and enjoy the music and not, not pick things apart or look for things that are wrong, but yeah, like there, well, yeah, I'll still, I'll still put up Jerry's nugget for the best cut of meat. Over the best steakhouse <laughs> in the planet. You know who st- you know where that tradition started, Matt. That's it's me. It's me. Oh, you so started that. Todd Matsubar and I, after I left, or right when we were leaving Alpine, he told us about. Well, we went to that place, and uh-huh, I was uh-huh. like, "This is on absolute- whose recommendation." He has he has a friend in just... Vegas or something where he knew about it because you know it's okay. in the shady spot of town, right? And yeah, so, yeah, it's so shady. When we yeah. and I went and I was like, oh my god! So that's how we started going was Todd and I going because it's so far off the strip and no one knows about yeah, it. Right. So yeah, it's the is it Grand Street or Grand Canal Cafe? Because it's a cafe within Jerry's Nugget and. The horse right. Well, now it's now it's yeah, it's, it's considered uh, Jerry's world famous coffee shop. I see. Now okay. so it used to yeah. be called the Grand Canal Cafe or whatever. But yeah, so I heard that story and I was like, "No way!" They're yeah. talking about Jerry's <laughs> Nugget, and I know exactly because going with you know Pisano and Brownie and Alpine Crew, you know, I remember that very distinctly because yeah. we had. And it's funny. I'll take people there now, and then. They're like looking at the menu, and I'm like, "Put the menu down. down. You don't look at the yes, menu here. Yes, <laughs> like this is what you're yes. getting." And they're like, "Well, I kind of wanted a salad," and I'm like, "Dude, you're gonna get a not salad. where you get a salad." Yes, yes. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how oh. much it is now, but it used to be so cheap and so good. And oh, it's probably the same price. Blow, blowing. <laughs> no, it's people. it's got up. Have you ever gotten the I think double the first cut? Time... Yes. <sighs> That is yes. So Once by accident, Carlson and I no. ordered the thick yes. cut, which is the medium uh-huh. sized one. And when they came out, somehow the lady had put down double cuts and it turned into a whole thing because she's like, if you don't take these, I'm going to have to pay for them. And she's like, giving us attitude. And Carlson's like, I don't care. I'll pay for them, whatever. And we we nod on them as much as we could, but we didn't get close. Brent Davison, who is the one Alpine uh demo car fabricator who never gets mentioned but shout out to brent What's up, brent? there somewhere sculpt sculpt garage um brent t- tried on two occasions and the first of the two attempts he got 90 percent no of the way through way. and the second time he only got about 80 percent through have you ever seen this? he has snack? a shirt yes I've not seen the double cut. It is yeah, two bones. The largest two bones chunk of, of meat you've ever seen put in front of someone's 
face. And you're yeah. like, that could feed a family of four or six. <laughs> for a month. Yes. <laughs> for a month. That, and, you know, I don't know what the portions are like these days, but it was ridiculous. No, that, that blew me away. But, yeah, hearing the Jerry Nugget yeah. story on the podcast was another. You know, I'm sitting there yelling <laughs> at the radio or yelling, at my, yelling in my car when I hear certain things. And I was like, wow, you know, there's so many cool, crazy moments that, like you said, part of the tapestry. Looking forward yep. to more, but yep. get to yep. do my little. Hopefully, little we can make school. some memories next year at Expo. That'd be awesome. Yeah. What else do we forget, yeah, Chris? Yeah. What else is? Tell there? us what we forgot. Yeah, there's, you know, inside there. That is, it's pretty. You know, lots of uh, shows and whatnot during the time at Alpine that were a lot of fun and a lot of memories and all the CESs, you know. Um, as far as the car audio side goes, it's it's interesting to see how certain people perceived the whether it was competition or you know pushing raising the bar doing things and like I keep saying that I'm not particularly competitive but it's still pushing the bar as a group in the industry up in those years and then you know you and Mike taking the torch and keep doing that. <laughs> you know, I tapped out and said, oh, I'll be doing this over here in a different way. But yeah, it was just pretty, pretty interesting time. I just don't see it anymore, you know? Yeah, it's it's weird to think that that era is done. And I don't, I don't think that car audio as a business is set up to support those kinds of budgets and, and facilities and that kind of stuff to do those big builds, nor is there necessarily the, the return on investment. You know, you talked a little bit about the magazine articles and that was, you know, after you were gone, that was what was looked at for ROI was how many, how many articles were written about the car and did it get the press and how many pages, you know, there was, there was like a page tally and that was the, like, that was the, did we do a good job? Did it get out there? And, you know, um, Having, I, I don't know when Jennifer Kwan started, if she was there when you oh, were there. Yeah. Um, but there. yeah, Jennifer would, would push to get those cars in every magazine she could and yeah. um, did a really good job with all that stuff. It's it's sad to think that that era is gone and who yeah. knows, maybe someday we'll find somebody to fund some let's, let's push the limits builds, but stroll down memory lane and do something fun, but. Yeah, it's, you know, the magazine and how things have, you know, changed so much with social media. And, you know, what if social media was around when you were there and all the things that we could have relayed and had feedback on to know what, you know, audiences we were targeting, what the reach was. And, you know, once I was on Instagram, you I'd get like, hey, I follow you from South Africa. And I was just like, whoa, you know, I had no <laughs> idea. I just wrote an article. We did a car and had absolutely no clue as to the reach and that was you know that was my first foray into some social media or my only foray into social media but it was um, (laughs) definitely interesting social media it's probably a good thing you weren't around during those times so much riffraff there's so much hatred there's so much back and forth there's some good stuff in there but there's also a lot of bad stuff so probably a good thing you weren't in there (laughs) but also I just want to tell you thank you for coming on the podcast, giving us three, four hours of your time. Not only did you do that, I mean, you're the MVP of the 
guests season of the guests because you got your own hotel room to be in a quiet <laughs> space relatively quiet hopefully yeah right so you are our mvp guest of the season and you are one of my most anticipated guests that i've wanted to have on to hear your story to hear your background just because you had so much influence of why i'm even in the industry right now so it was a pleasure talking to you it was a pleasure hearing your story hearing your background and uh it was a lot of fun yes appreciate that it's uh you've had you know passing the torch on to the next generation of people that are doing all the things and kicking butt so yeah and it's it's always weird to hear like you know you talk about mark as your inspiration you know you were one of my big inspirations and then (laughs) you just always gotta be humbled and recognize that because like when there's people that hit me up on instagram or whatever you just gotta realize you don't know who you may be influencing right so it's just always trying to be there and be coherent and available and try and teach somebody something and not be too busy for someone. It gets tough sometimes because there's always messages, whether it's clients or installers. So you kind of have to manage your time wisely. But at the same time, you never know who might be looking at me the way that I looked at you or the way that you looked at Mark, right? So kind of that passing of the torch and just trying to keep on keeping on. And, and also, uh, there are people in this industry, past, present, and I'm sure in the future, that do a lot of jumping up and down and telling you how great they are. And mm-hmm. I really appreciate the humbleness of a certain select few individuals and you are definitely one of those people so much so that i remember quoting to somebody one time chris yada's never had to tell me how great he was mm-hmm. and uh that's a popular so, quote that goes around the circles yeah so well, just wanted to let you know that that you are the the source of a, a quote that i use often so. i appreciate that yeah it's you know there's just like you said, passing the torch and having, you know, I, I don't know who your other guests are and you know, we've had some of them on, but you know, the names that I haven't heard mentioned are definitely like Bill Hamsey from JL with uh, yeah. Gary Martin for sure. And I don't, I haven't, I've lost touch with those guys and uh, definitely Scott Whitehead from Benchmark Motoring and him and his crew were just amazing. So Scott would be a great guest to have. Yeah. Yeah. Brain power of that yeah. guy, yeah, yeah, and and another guy who's been able to branch out into other things, and yes, always always exploring new opportunities and and advancement. I really think that the car audio mentality of figuring things out and experimenting and doing you know doing things a little differently and the multi talented. Um, background you have to have to do things successfully is you know has paid dividends for a lot of people and going different ways they want to go you know like the way jeremy has branched out you know listening to his story was great and just keep pushing and you know if you do it to a certain level with a certain work ethic and a certain uh, passion 
it could definitely, even if it's not directly car audio related, the skills and whatnot can go a long way, but it's hard to put on paper. It seems like, you know, to justify or whatever, or prove yourself out. But once you're out there and doing it and people can see what you're doing, that, that well-roundedness or whatever it is, definitely seems to pay dividends. So I'm definitely proud of that. car audio related fabrication slash background hope people still you know enjoy it and can still pursue it and still make a good living off of it so passing the torch to the next generation and one of these days soon we'll get you out to one of the smaller car audio competitions (laughs) one of these days Uh, closer to the house those other ones were a little bit far but yes yeah that would be great yeah, for first sure. first job is to get to Expo next year. It's, it's yeah. on the docket. So barring any major um, disasters or crazy projects, we should be good. But it's so hard to see into the future for me, even a month out, much less a yeah. year out. So you, keep me posted. Keep, you we'll know, do. what all the things, the crazy things you're doing to support it. So, well, thanks right. again for, for coming on and spending the time with us. And yeah. amazing story, amazing path, amazing career. And just thank you, thank you for all you've done, and thanks for being here. I'm honored to be a guest, and uh, hope to listen to lots of great episodes and keep filling in that tapestry. Thanks, guys. Now you just got to say cue the music, Chris. (laughs) All right, cue the music, guys.